Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So since we're on this break, over the All-Star break, figured I'd try something that I've done once before when I talked about the greatest players of all time with Kevin Pelton and Royce Webb a few years ago. Wanted to dig back into the archives. Maybe you missed this one when it came out originally, but it should still be pretty green. It's actually from spring of 2018. And then we're going to do a second one that was from the fall of 2018. Apologies for my audio quality. I recorded it from a hotel room on my honeymoon, the second one. But it's with our friend Ben Taylor. I think this first episode is, and he can correct me if I'm wrong here, but might have been the first podcast that he did. And I'd been loving his series on backpicks.com. He'd started getting into writing again after a hiatus. I'd always followed him. I loved his book, Thinking Basketball. So I reached out to him through a mutual acquaintance who knew him pretty well, had him on the pod, and he was awesome. And he's been really surging one of the best voices in NBA media now. His YouTube channel, Thinking Basketball, is fantastic. So some of this stuff will be a little bit out of date. You know, this is spring of 2018, this first one. But overall, should still hold up reasonably well, talking about the overrated and underrated players of all time. And then the second episode is his top eight players of all time and so looking forward to re-listening to this myself actually i probably will uh when i'm driving to my all-star destination which is not chicago and if you've heard this before you're not interested in it no hard feelings if you don't want to listen but i figured no reason not to throw out some more content for you while we're on the break here and i think it holds up pretty well all right wednesday night edition of the pod and a new guest that i wanted to bring on a guy whose work has intrigued me even going back to 2002 when i first started reading him he's a bit of a shadowy figure because his twitter handle is uh kind of doesn't isn't really very self-explanatory but uh his name is ben taylor has been doing an awesome series at his site backpicks.com uh with doing some historical rankings from a different perspective and with some data that i haven't seen anywhere else so i wanted to have him on the show talk a little bit about his philosophy and then get into uh, the historical rankings uh, that he's done he still has eight to go but i wanted to talk to him about his methodology and where he is uh so far through the uh nine through 40 and then maybe we'll have him back on to talk about his top eight but uh enough introduction here we were just talking before the show of how i don't do that much introduction but uh here's uh ben taylor how you doing man thanks for having me i'm, I'm glad to be here and uh i have been described as many things i don't know if shadowy figure is one of them <laughs> um well although well, so, it's so your your <laughs> your twitter handle is lg35 where does that come from uh because that is not in fact your initials yeah wow no one has ever asked me that um so lg is for the phonetic letters l and g just spelled out yeah and that that actually comes from uh a nickname that a girlfriend gave me a very long time ago um which stands for something that i can't repeat on air <laughs> and, um, 
<laughs> and uh, and the 35 was my number when I played. All right. Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a great way to get started. Um, yeah, I, I never really knew what that was. So so it's just one of those sort of, you just have so many sunk costs now with that handle that you don't yeah, yeah. want to want to change it. You know, you can just change it and like you don't lose any followers. I, I, I used to be the team rebound uh, back when I was working as a lawyer and I wasn't sure whether I wanted people to know who I was at the law firm. I wasn't sure how they were going to take it. And then when I started with Basketball Insiders, I changed it to Nate Duncan NBA and I didn't lose any of my like, you know, 400 followers or, or whatever that I had at the time. You know, it's serendipitous because I was just thinking today, is that just stuck in stone forever or can I change it? Um, so maybe I will now. Maybe you've inspired me. <laughs> so I, I introed you, uh, shadowy figure intro aside, you do have a little bit different of an approach to analytics, to, to talking about basketball. Uh, you have your book that you've written as well, uh, which we'll talk about. But what do you think is kind of separates your philosophy and some of your ideas from some of the stuff that we see more in, in mainstream NBA analysis? Well, I think the there's this classic dichotomy that exists between the, the eye test or film heavy folks and the analytics crowd. Um, and I've always kind of felt that that was a false dichotomy that whether even going back to in, in high school when I played or or would try to scout the opponent, you kind of want both, right? Um, and I think there's a, a, as a social scientist, there's a bent there as well where you're, you're thinking like, okay, I wouldn't just get the data or measurements of anything. I also want to qualify it. I want to understand what it means in its context. And basketball to me is the beautiful game because it balances those things. Like baseball, very discreet, right? Everything's just these events, one event after another. Right. Um, but in basketball, you have this balance of a tremendous amount of information, but you also need to know like, okay, what's the context in terms of offensive strategy? Um, are the lineups defensively slanted? Does a team play fast or slow? Um, you know, what's the balance between inside and outside fit? I talk about fit a lot. So I think that's sort of, uh, I'm unique in the sense that I uh, have a foot in both pools. Well, and one of the concepts that I, I've started using, reading it in your latest series is the idea of both scalability uh, and the idea of floor raisers and how there could be different skill sets uh, that lead to the, those outcomes. Do you elaborate on those for the audience, uh, kind of what you mean when you talk about those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so the the original sort of um, concept came from all the research I did on trying to figure out the relationship between how much a guy impacts the scoreboard and his championship off. And what emerged from that basically was it doesn't help as much to be able to take a poor offense and make them respectable if you then can't play the same game with better people around you. So the classic example is some isolation score. Uh, back in the day, I used to call it Iversoning the team, where you just be surrounded by a bunch of defensive guys and you give the ball to an isolationist. He can create for everyone else on the court and he's just taken all kinds of crazy shots and maybe he makes them at some moderate percentage, but he, he's not fantastic. How does that translate if you actually put better offensive players on the team? Um, and so the original term that I came up with was portability as an homage to the, basically to the PDF, which has to do with yeah. how well how well do you interface with different guys in different teams? So scaling is a huge component of that because when we say how much does his game scale, what we really mean is can he hold value as he plays next to better and better players? Because there's only one ball and uh, this kind of got hot or big around um, the time of the heatles where you had redundancy being discussed a lot. So that's that's the idea. They go hand in hand. You can have a skill set that raises the floor of a team, um, but then that might not translate necessarily to a better offense, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I've been talking about this, I think, a little bit 
less eloquently than you just did that there are some players that i view as you know having value in the nba they deserve to, to get paid guys who will get you from you know 30 wins to 45 wins you know or or 25 wins to 40 wins you know i've thought of right. demarcus cousins maybe as a guy like that and part part of that will be you know maybe because they're not as good defensively cousins it's interesting you know, he hasn't played with a lot of other star talent um but is a guy with who's really high usage not the greatest efficiency he can at least shoot now which he couldn't before but then it has some defensive limitations and uh you know i don't know would you see him as kind of an example the type of player that you're talking about in today's game he possibly um cousins to me is out of all the players in my sort of historical rolodex he's the biggest mystery to me um because fortuitous yeah and i i'm it is we we didn't we didn't plan this beforehand or anything um it was impromptu that you just brought him up and he has this incredible statistical portfolio i mean he's clearly a very skilled passer he's now a big that can hit threes um he's it's not like he's gone the way but, of but not, an, not at an amazing percentage though you know he's shooting, yeah, he, he, like just enough that you have to guard him out there but it's like if he's like just a spot up threat from you know getting kickouts it's kind of it's to me that he's not like some big threat but if you're guarding him one-on-one you have to get out there and guard him it's kind of if he has the ball it's it's an interesting you know there's not a lot of players like that especially at the big position right 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 exactly i mean he actually um he shows up historically when you just filter by bigs among highest uh box creation numbers and assist percentages and things like that so he it's he's an intriguing case study to me because on one hand the i think the short answer is oh well maybe his defense is just really that underwhelming um uh, on the other hand it's like how much is he helping on offense is it because of the teams he's on and we can get into this uh later but you know there's this relationship that exists between your role related to floor raising of course and what happens to your box score numbers and sometimes you end up with these really gouty sexy box score numbers but as you try to scale up to a better team it it doesn't fit i'm just not convinced with him i've never done a deep dive and and maybe that's long overdue yeah so who are some other players in today's game you you would view as floor raisers but then maybe would not necessarily scale on a better team well i think the even before even before i really um came up with sort of formalizing these concepts more uh, carmelo was one of the original guys we talked about years ago uh and, and he's almost he's almost like passe because he's such a common answer but you, you got to think about the skills and sort of the core skills and how they interface together so if you're a ball stopper and you like to isolate and you and you live in the mid post or you take up that entire pinch post and you want to clear out and you're slowing the game down like how is that going to fit with ball movement or with other people that break down the defense there's this relationship between creators and finishers and sometimes isolationists don't uh, fit into that scheme very well so I think Carmelo is sort of uh, one of the classic cases um, then one I wrote about for nylon earlier this year is Westbrook sure yeah Sorry, he's, go ahead. he's had, really he's really kind of the quintessential one you would think yeah 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 exactly um, and and you see it in the data we we just uh, passed Kevin Durant's profile this week and there's a little blurb in there on Westbrook and basically when Durant is out of the lineup the the floor doesn't fall out because Westbrook he's such a tornado right he can carry so much and create so much and his his scoring rates uh, himself are actually enormous uh, but then of course he's dominating the ball um, and so when you pair him with better players you know it, he doesn't he's not bad right but he's just not holding the same value so it's interesting that you mentioned mellow and you mentioned Westbrook I mean those are guys who have played on some really good offenses yeah right yep. so so how does that 
to to say to me at least and maybe you can correct me though those guys don't fall into that category as much for me because you know i mean like if you could just put a good defense around the offenses that they were on you know you're right at a championship level it's the guys who are like you know and even if their own personal efficiency wasn't that high they apparently are creating enough for others where they can be efficient and, and being on some good offenses or you can play with a a kevin durant type of player and still have a good offense um is there what's your reaction to that i'm so glad you brought that up another thing that we we didn't plan but i have uh, jedi teleported into your into your mind to ask about <laughs> um this comes up a lot where people say hey how can this guy how can you say this guy doesn't scale too well if he played on really good team and scaling poorly or not having great portability doesn't mean you can't play on good team it just means that your value is diminished the better and better the talent around you is right so you can westbrook and durant um and the fact that they had some good defensive talent there ends up producing fairly high-end clubs but it's the and this is i think another thing about my work that's fairly unique i try not to get too focused on the the one situation that we're looking at right yeah yeah and, and i think that's a mental trap it's it's totally um totally a normal human reaction for us to not want to sit there and have these thought experiments about well god what if he played with another ball dominant wing like you know what if kobe instead of playing with Shaq, played with another jordan type like how would that work and that's really what we're talking about. yeah so and i think that seems like one of the basis for your project that i thought was interesting and obviously if you're doing any kind of rankings like this it's entirely subjective uh, and how you want to value certain things all time is entirely subjective so this is where i, I kind of wanted to start with you on your project which was your methodology was it seemed to me like the idea is if you just put this guy in any situation uh you know not necessarily by era but just with different types of players you know just you kind of ran his career a thousand times and he played on a thousand different kinds of teams how good how much value would have he added towards winning championships is that a decent summary of, of what you yeah. tried to do yeah that's a decent summary of what's been going on in my brain for the last year or two <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it's a little more than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. I don't leave the simulator on all the time. It, 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 you know. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's no. That's, so that's exactly it. Um, and uh, to your point, you can you can slice this thing many different ways. You can come up with a lot of different criteria. I wanted a criteria um, that essentially served as a. Ver- it's almost overly rigid, right? It's like here's here's the approach. We're sticking to the approach approach um you know reggie miller comes out 29th that feels weird but use the information and use the approach as you will if you then want to fold back in your own criteria um for me over the years to your point about a thousand simulations and whatnot i I just it's too compelling for me the evidence historically when you go through these these great players team to team is too compelling for me to say i'm only gonna focus on um you know i'm trying to think of a guy who's not in the top eight because i'm trying not to say too much. Uh, but I'm only I'm only going to focus on Moses Malone when he's in a great situation. I'm not going to focus on him when he's in a situation that isn't as good. I, I just, that feels too arbitrary to me. So that's sort of how I ended up moving more and more toward trying to under, 
understand how you can build around guys, how they fit in different situations, how they fit in different lineups. I think it lends itself really well to people who like to um, view uh, if I drafted this guy, you know, how much value would I get throughout his career? That sort of that kind of approach. Well, all right. So, so the way I'd like to get into this a little bit more here, rather than the nuts and bolts of your methodology, is let's talk a little bit about some of the players who deviated the most from what your pre-existing expectations were as you started this project, and then also uh, the who deviates the the most from what the conventional wisdom was. And the one that really stuck out to me, which you asked on Twitter the other day, which one was your was my favorite, and I said it was Wilt Chamberlain because that deviated the most from what my pre-existing expectations had been. So when you dove in to Wilt, what did you find about him that's a little bit different from what the conventional wisdom had been about his career? You know, when I started with Wilt, um, because I'm I'm often gravitating back toward the cognitive side of how we sort of perceive the game, and I talk about this a lot in Thinking Basketball, um, I was thinking, wow, Wilt gets really underrated because he lost, right? There's this idea that when you when you lose, people start um, sort of slanting negatively again. So that's where I started. And then you uncover, like, wait a second, his team's offenses weren't really that good when he was scoring a lot. I think that's the first big breakthrough to realize with him. Um, and then there's the second thing is he actually starts to join these super teams, especially in LA, uh, and not great stuff happens. So then that introduces you to the concept of fit. And that's why I actually started, Wilt was the first profile I wrote for the series. I uh, wasn't even necessarily sure I was going to turn it into a, a top whatever series because he's just, he's so foundational and so instructional um, in terms of looking at the relationship between scoring and the box score and creation and fit and all that stuff. Yeah, because about a year, I think it was- I can't remember it was last year or two years ago, uh, Kevin Pelton, I had him on uh, Royce Webb, and we talked a little bit about Wilt. And, and I, uh, you have more advanced statistical tools uh, available uh, at your disposal than I do uh, and did at the time. But a lot of the players I would go back and just looked at, hey, you know, especially for the big men, you know, where did their teams rank defensively? And then, you know, going back to Wilt, I, you know, it's like, oh, he shot 50% from the field in, in that 1962 season when he averaged right, 50 right. points a game. And then, you, and then you looked at it, but that was like, you know number two in the league in field goal percentage and he has this absolutely preposterous usage so man he must have mm-hmm. just been an incredible offensive player but apparently you know his teams weren't that good offensively even so it's kind of adrian dantley disease i guess is, is another way to talk about it yeah it's a, and i think that's exactly what it is which is uh not to say that either are are negatives or anything like that but the assumption i think there's this de facto connection historically between huge scoring and he must be an offensive force like i i hear him described is like the most dominant offensive force ever. And it's like, well, it wasn't really actually overly efficient in terms of the the team outcome. Um, And of course, you know, we have pace. So people forget to adjust for pace. So they see the 44 and the 50 point season um, along with all the rebounds that were available. And they think like, wow, this guy must have must have been crushing it. Um, But I think the other big thing is, which I've just alluded to is creation. You know, like, are you are you setting up your teammate? Um, And and I actually until this most recent pass, I didn't really how the, the, the ratio between the amount he shot and the amount of assist he collected and how sort of outlying that was historically I think that was a, a pretty um, revealing thing for me as well well and so when you you say that are you referring to the idea that like he either kind of passed or he or he shot but he wouldn't try to shoot draw the defense and then pass to get other guys open that's kind of what I took away from your analysis yeah um for wilt he he has this he has this period in the first six or seven years of his career, which I typically just call the volume scoring year. Yeah. And then I think what what is 
so stunning that people may not realize again because of pace is he, the shift he goes from he goes from being the team's leading shot taker on a pretty regular basis as a guy who's getting the ball in the post and basically finishing or performing isolation he's not creating a whole bunch he's not carving up the defense like like the modern offensive engines are and then in and then in 67 uh Alex Hannum comes in he starts this period where I think he per 36 goes from first to like seventh or ninth on the team in field goal attempts and again he's playing the whole game playing 45 46 48 minutes so he ends up averaging 20 points a game but there's 110 possession uh pace that they're playing and you look at that and you go like oh wow he's actually not shooting that off there's a huge difference in how he plays and we've never really seen anything like that yeah just uh, that change it and maybe that part of that because i think what was it 60 that 67 year when they won this won 68 and 13 that he led the league in assists so it seems like a very conscious decision perhaps informed by coaching i mean that was an unbelievable team that he was on obviously one of the best in nba history to just pass a a lot more uh and so did you find that he was more helpful to the offense then as a passer was he really you know adding value there or is he just more kind of serving as a hub and and throwing it to guys once they became open but not really you know passing guys open yeah this is a i i bring this up in the opening of the book because i think it's that fundamental um the shift from 66 to 67 we're very lucky that they didn't change much in those years uh really billy cunningham who is in his early years um ages right so he's got some maturity that you'd have to build into an aging curve but they bring back the exact same lineup and alex hannum comes in who had coached wilt uh earlier in in uh, when he was with the warriors and he says look i want you to shift how you play and pass more he actually led the league in assists in 68 oh, okay and it was in six it was in 67 that they sort of he had probably the best balance he ever had between scoring and passing um but the 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 big i guess i'll i'll uh i'll tease what happens at the end of the first chapter the, the big takeaway is the offense shifts to become the best offense up until that point in league history they go from kind of like a ho-hum offense to i think they're around like plus five um in relative efficiency or something like that which was a huge shift at the time and you know that was like okay this is really working if you can find a balance between scoring and passing and then wilt ends up going too far in the other direction um to the point where there are games in la at the end of his career where he wouldn't even shoot he, he basically sort of uh, assumes a tyson chandler role at the end of his career so he's, he's just a fascinating player uh, to look at we can talk about him forever probably yeah and we don't i'm sure we want to talk about some other people but your conclusion that his defense was pretty underrated is an interesting one especially given his reputation of like not really being a winner uh but then he did kind of this hidden stuff that people didn't really realize as much and so th- this is something else that, that you mentioned was that we're between 66 and 67 we're lucky that they didn't change anything but it is those changes in the lineups that it seems like enabled you to at least for some players or some guys who are in the lineup all the time it's tougher to do to kind of approximate what we have these days in on off statistics by just looking at games where they played and didn't play or when certain players left the team and went to others um so can you describe a little bit more about what you did to try to fill in the gaps in, in what you call the pre-data ball era yeah so um 
if you think about, we have play-by-play right now, which is the the basis of on-off, and we've had that for over two decades. Um, yeah. but N- 96, 97, is that the first year, 96, 97, that we had that? 96, 97 is the first year we have full play-by-play, and then we've got, we're very lucky, uh, the, the legendary Philadelphia 76ers statistician Harvey Pollack, um, he published in his logs, in his, he used to put out like a, a, an annual catalog or something, um, he did the NBA's plus-minus for 94, 95, and 96. Not play-by-play, but the total plus-minus. So we've got almost 25 years of plus-minus data. But that's all at sort of a guy checks in, a guy checks out. It's at the play level, okay? Before that, um, the the technique that I started using years ago was to look at the game level and say, what happens if you have the exact same lineup, but a guy misses 10, 20, 30 games? What happens when you trade for someone, which occasionally happens, and the guy you traded for, you cut or he's injured and doesn't play. So you basically end up with these controlled situations where you have A, B, C, D, and E, and then you have A, B, C, D, E, and F, and you can compare the two. So that was sort of the first uh, technique to try to look back and look back in time and, and get something that wasn't box score based, right? Get something that was more of an impact measurement. That was the first. Uh, another thing that you've done a lot of is hand tracking, where obviously it's not possible to do that uh, on a, an enormous scale. But I think, you know, maybe on average, you're doing uh, like how many uh, for this series? I mean, obviously, you know, Bob Pettit, there's not much film available of him, but how many on average possessions are you able to do with your hand tracking for most of these guys? Uh, most of the ones who had a full profile, I would say the low end was in the 600s, and then there were other guys that are over a 1,000. Um, it becomes a balance. At a certain point, you watch some film and you you see like, okay, you just you have the offensive tendon. You just They just keep coming up over sure. and over and over again. So, right, so then at that point, it's a question of, all right, can I get a big enough sample to at least have a, a ballpark feel for what's happening with the phenomena I'm trying to track? That is to say, passing, vision, um, defensive tendencies, right? Like how often do you have a breakdown? Some of those things only happen a couple times every hundred possessions. So you, you want a bigger sample, but at a certain point, you're like, okay, I'm, I, I got to do something else with my life. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the balance. So tell us what you hand, hand check, what stats you come up with uh that you know we haven't really seen necessarily elsewhere um in our our uh basketball uh statistical universe so most of them are around things of course that aren't captured traditionally and that means uh help defense kind of stuff um some on-ball defense stuff and a lot around passing I, i i feel like passing in general is sort of a space that isn't fully fletched out like um even when you watch a game certain certain passing concepts or opportunities aren't discussed. It's very rare. So I've obviously watched a lot of tape uh, recently and over the years. Very, very rare for even a color commentator to say, hey, you know, he missed a man. He missed a cutter. He missed a guy under. And they're there. You know, I'm I'm showing them. Sometimes they're incredibly clear. Uh, But so just this entire realm of passing, um, I started with saying, okay, when are you missing good passes? When are you making high leverage passes? Uh, That was one big thing. And then defense can be a little trickier. It almost reminds me of getting in to try to grade football sometimes especially yeah i mean that's this is what i've been wanting to ask you because you know you have in there like okay he had a breakdown he shows some film examples of it but i mean what's kind of your rubric for determining when a breakdown has occurred yeah you 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 have to go in with a working assumption um every once in a while there'll be something where you'll look at the play three or four times so one thing i do by the way is i watch plays over and over they have a little button that just lets you watch the play over and over Uh, i recommend that a lot because it's it's hard to 
see everything. And then when you do that, every once in a while there'll be a breakdown, but I'll look at it and I'll be like, okay, it's possible that there's some realistic scheme here where they want to play the pick and roll that way. Or yeah, it's totally someone else's responsibility. And asking that second level defender to come over is really asking him to make a great play versus a breakdown. Those are two different things, right? The inability to make an elite, incredible recovery that covers for someone else's mistake is different than being responsible for making the mistake in the first place. Sure. Yeah. So, so, so but it's that, really, it's kind of, and you know, you have the expertise, but it really is just kind of it's subjective when it all comes down to I me. Mean, it's really, it's, and I don't know that it's, it is possible to come up with something objective for that. Yeah. I, I think of it as subjective. I think it's less subjective in certain older contexts. I think the game now is, is more complex. Yeah. Um, and the, the defensive coverages now are more complex. When I, when I break down film from the last five years, even there's a lot more to saying like, okay, someone missed a rotation there. Whereas in the old days, especially the period from like 82 to 02, where you had the old illegal defense rules in the, the rotation responsibilities were pretty standard. You know, every team sort of had this, like your, your high block, low block. Um, if you had like on a string rotations, it was, it was pretty clear who missed stuff there. So there, there is a subject to subjectivity to it that to your point, I'm just like with grading football or something, I'm not sure you can ever get around without being the coach. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's the same thing, even, you know, when we're doing our live call or we're talking about uh, on the podcast right. that, that there is a breakdown. I mean, you, you try to do the best job you can, but you don't know uh, for sure. Uh, and I mean, I think it's, it's a, a little better to just kind of do it like, okay, this was a breakdown and this, this happened. If you're not trying to then say, okay, this is the breakdown. We're assigning, you know, negative five points for my overall value metric from this. Like right, that's, right, right. that's when I think it really kind of gets, gets dicey as opposed to just being like, okay, this is another tool that we're going to use. You know, I just subjectively saw that this guy had X number of breakdowns and you compare that with other guys. It's not as often, you know, so if you want to kind of grade it on its scale, just using it as its own tool, as opposed to then trying to translate right. it into like, okay, you know, this guy, you know, these are definitive defensive rankings or he cost his team X number of points with this. Like that's where I think it gets a little more difficult. Right. Agreed. Agreed. And I think that's the spirit to say everything that's happening on the court has some level of context. This gets us back to, uh, you know, how I ended up starting to view things as, ah, maybe we shouldn't just judge that one situation. Maybe we should think of how this extrapolates to more situations because some guy may um, have a higher rate of elite passes or layup passes that he hits or something, but he also might have the ball a lot more. He also might be to what's happening nowadays when I when I see uh, like the hardened rockets, right? The court is so spaced out. Oh, yeah. That your, pass, your passing lanes are better and your rotations are harder. So it makes sense that he's going to have a higher ratio of something. And you can take that in a smaller scale and apply it to any team historically, right? The, the context is going to uh, inform whatever measurement, whether it's in the box score or whether I hand track it. Uh, and so that's the spirit of just saying like, here's the data, here's what happened. Um, it's a proxy for something. It, it's very hard to get it perfect. Hey, you mentioned the spacing. One of the pieces you, you wrote recently was just a, a kind of a visual history of NBA spacing. So if, if you're going to say, you know, obviously we know what it is now with a team like the Warriors. We know what it is with the team like the Rockets. In contrast, Oklahoma City last night had no spacing against the Rockets right there because <laughs> they just weren't guarding Houston or, or, or Grant or, or any of these guys. You know, so so it's not all teams that, that you're going to have that level of spacing, but at least they're going to have them try and stand further away, even if you're not guarding them. But can you summarize that piece for us a little bit of like, you know, what did you see as some of the main tactical changes uh, 
evolving through the decades in NBA spacing? Ooh, um, it, it was first of all, I think it's more important than is ever given credit for when when we talk about history. And, and the first thing uh, which is related to the spacing was the dribbling and palming and traveling rules. Um, and I have a I have a clip coming up in one of the top eight profiles that was called for a travel. Um, and I hope people rewatch it as many times as I have just to see how it could humanly be a trap. It's like a half a step. It's like a zero step travel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, right. And so I think we forget that this was the environment back then. And the way this connects to spacing is if it's harder for you, think of like hockey or soccer, if it's harder for you as a perimeter player to navigate with the ball, right, then the approach back then was, well, we got to we got to pass it to places and we got to use screens and we got to dump it into our big people because we can't get space for these one on one players to work because they'll be called for a travel or they'll be called for a, a palming or something. So that was the first huge thing where people are talking about spacing. They're trying to improve spacing. Um, you see it in the old literature, like the 60, 68 Lakers, uh, Van Bredikoff came in and he had this whole like, oh, we're going to, we're going to do the Princeton offense. We're going to bring the bigs up. We're going to have the lane wide open. So this stuff was going on for a while, but it, it, it just slowly took forever to get to the, then you finally get to the three point line and you would think, okay, we've got the three point line. Uh, the ABA had the three point line long before the NBA and the ABA, when I watched the film has much better spacing. Oh yeah. I mean, there were guys had- in the ABA who were, you know, making like three or four three pointers a game right? You know, or, or, and right. taking like, you know, seven or eight or something like that. I mean, maybe I'm overstating a little bit there, but, but compared to, um, you know, the NBA, when it first came in in 79, I mean, it really, it took like probably to like the nineties for the NBA to get to the, uh, spacing and three point attempt rate that the ABA had. Right, right, right. Exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't seven or eight, but the difference was they shot them. Yeah. And, and when you, you know, you look at the way they spaced the court, they actually had guys, uh, spotting up behind the stripe as a weapon. Whereas in the NBA, they almost eschewed it. It was like, it didn't even exist. You watch some of the, the Lakers Celtics games from the early eighties and everybody's inside the three point yeah. arc. And you're like, you're like, wait a second. Um, what's going on here? So yeah, it, it took a long time for the three, three point shot to catch on. I think in 95, shortening the line. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the historical trends, right, that was a, that was an inflection point that it never recovered from because even when they brought the line back out, I think coaches just realized how you could weaponize it. Um, so the, the long winded answer, Nate, is penetrators and guards have over the years, almost every decade, they've had more and more space to work with so you give them the ball more their assists go up their their points go up and you end up with this like super engine concept again james harden lebron's had it for a while where you're like jordan and magic put together because you just get the ball and you score 30 and you dish out 12 and you know bob's your uncle <laughs> good to go um so let's talk a few about a, a few more I threw the... you with the bob's your uncle I know. yeah I, well what I is what is that, that from <laughs> what is that from i don't know that's an expression i don't know okay yeah I, I i mean i think i might have saying it I might well I, I got that confused with the like the not great bob uh for mad men but i was uh but but yeah let's uh the good news is i have a tool that like truncates all the silences so it's actually gonna found, sound very seamless um 
<laughs> who are some of the other guys who really deviated in your rankings and you can see the full rankings at least through the top eight uh, i think you're, he's going to be done in like a month or so with the top eight to um but you've got like nine through like 32 or something right now uh so you can check that out at backpicks all right so who are the other players who both either with you from your preconceived notions or the general conventional wisdom deviated uh from that well we we mentioned reggie miller earlier i think he's one um and i've always i've always been higher than normal even just back when he played because i was sensitive to uh, sort of the gravity effect that he had when he spaced the court um i think the other thing about miller that gets so lost is he's he seems to be penalized for coming off screens working off the ball um that whole sort of approach to offense when i actually think that's one of his most valuable weapons because how do you defense a bunch of big men setting screens how do you defense the counters on his cuts uh, i think that's perhaps one of the reasons why he was so good in the postseason um and we can we can talk about that later if you want to talk about other guys in the postseason but he's like what he was able to do in the playoffs is kind of mind-blowing when you stack it up next to other players in history so that's one yeah. reggie miller yeah and he he wasn't the highest usage guy i mean I, if i recall like i don't think he ever really had a usage more than maybe like 22 or 23 percent you could correct me if i'm misremembering there but it, you know it wasn't like the level of most big superstars that we see but he was incredibly efficient so he's able to be a big scorer and then uh his offenses that he played on always seemed to be really good perhaps because of that spacing perhaps because of that gravity off the ball where the defense would really have to tilt to him when he came off a screen yeah exactly um he his it's interesting his regular season usage was always lower than his postseason hmm. usage he, he gets in the playoffs he kicks it up the scoring goes up and he's got this like upper echelon just incredible efficiency and it doesn't really budge um and he did this against some of you know his most famous escapades are against the knicks and those knicks defenses were loaded um so he, he did it against really good defenses uh he did it um you know at a higher rate in terms of scoring and usage in the postseason but he didn't have an efficiency drop off and i think historically we've looked back and there's a there's a passage from um bill simmons book of basketball where he just says like miller's an 18-3-3 guy and it's like 18 points three assists three rebounds and it's like okay number one he doesn't get offensive rebounds just the same way dirk doesn't because he's out on the perimeter playing away from the ball number two yes he's not a great passer or creator but he's making up for that in spacing and that wasn't something that was really discussed so he's sort of historically been lost in the shuffle as this like the other the other term about him is well he's a one-dimensional three-point shooter and it's like mm, that kind of misses some stuff too because he's actually he's hitting defenses with something that's far more effective than just say having a an Antoine Carr uh, jump hook in the post do you like that big dog reference I threw in there <laughs> yeah I mean I think it, uh they might have like played Antoine Carr even at the three someone was talking about that at, at times in, in like the the uh in the NBA finals uh, that's just uh, that's crazy but yeah it's like uh, and he was really I think the first guy who had the ability to come off of screens uh and shoot a three-pointer um, uh, off the ball you know I, I can't maybe maybe Dale Ellis would have been in that category too I can't really think of any others uh, at the time uh Miller preceded Glenn Rice by a little bit but those especially doing it with the longer three-point line as opposed to that shorter 22-foot line yep 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 exactly um you know the the archetype I, I almost argue that the archetype goes back to John Havlicek who uh, would just run 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 all the time through screens in the in the old Celtics offense and then uh, there was a play named Sweet Lou Hudson, who was an all-star uh, kind of wing player who had a similar game, but they didn't have a three-point line. 
to your point. And Miller was the one who, I mean, he started shooting more threes than you would want to shoot. We gotta, we gotta pause for a second and go back to what we were saying about the three point shot not catching on. Um, there were people who didn't like the shot because you couldn't make it at a high percentage. <laughs> and it genuinely took that, it, right? It genuinely yeah. took that long for the math to catch up. Yeah. And I remember Don Nelson, uh, zany Don Nelson, who always had these outside the box ideas, uh, when he was coaching the Mavs, I want to say at the end of the 90s, they were terrible. Right. Right. And he he literally came up with this, at least ostensibly, came up with this plan where he said, look, we're just going to shoot like 43s a game. And people were like, that's crazy. You can't shoot 30 or 43s a game. He's like, we only got to make them at like 33%. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it worked. I don't think it worked out very well. Um, but that's a good segue, unless you want to talk more about Miller, that's a good segue to another player that I, I think is um, is worth discussing, which is Steve Nash. Yeah. And, and Nash, I mean, if you go back to the time of those MVPs, it, a lot of the people who were more statistical analysis focused at the time with the metrics that were available, you know, on off was just barely beginning to get into the consciousness right. uh, publicly with 82games.com at that point in 05 and 06. But that MVP selection for him in those back-to-back years was pilloried. But I think if now, if you go back and look at it, where he was in terms of just the quality of his offense and the on-off metrics, uh, in addition, obviously, to the skill that he showed on film, uh, perhaps those were a lot more justified than people gave him credit for at the time in the advanced community, despite the fact that the conventional wisdom at the time was, okay, he is the MVP. Right. I I, I think, one, he's he's got the points per game thing being held against him and, um, you know, being a, a short white Canadian dude, um, that was always something that kind of said, oh, people said, okay, he, he may be good on offense, even though he doesn't score much, but how good can he be? And his defense must be terrible. And so the first hurdle to overcome, um, which I, as you said, with 82 games was entering into the consciousness was the fact that like, okay, his approach offensively um, is having this huge team effect. And when he goes off the court, the team, they're a good offensive team, so they don't fall apart, but they're pedestrian. And when he's on the court, they're like literally the best offenses ever. Um, that, that's a pretty significant thing. I actually, I think it was uh, Kevin Arnovitz who uh, did a, a video series back in the day on basically like how good Nash was running pick and roll. That was really the first time, maybe around 2010, that I started to revisit that whole thing. But there's still a second hurdle to get over with Nash in terms of pe- how people historically assess him, which is what happened in Dallas. So when you go under the hood, the impact metrics in Dallas are kind of pedestrian. Yeah. And the, the narrative that emerged was, well, it was it was the rule changes. It was D'Antoni. It was the system. That's what it was. It was Nash got lucky to be in a perfect situation. And when he was with Dallas, it didn't work out well. And oh, by the way, he left Dallas and then Dallas became incredible and Dirk won MVP. And so how good can Nash be? And so the, the, the big revelation for me this time around was going back and watching those games, connecting some of the data and saying, wait a second, Nash, he gets a little better in Phoenix. Um, I think his conditioning was far improved with the, the famed Phoenix medical staff. Yeah. But, but he's kind of playing the exact same way. I was blown away at how good his passing was in 2001. Um, and that's kind of when those young guys burst out on the scene and they upset Utah in the first round. And, uh, I think they, I think they played the Spurs decently in the second round and kind of bowed out. But you just go back and you look at that and you're like, okay, wow, this is more about fit. This is more about something else is going on here just beyond the rule changes or Nash getting lucky. Fi- final point of the story is, of course, when D'Antoni leaves, um, Nash is still fantastic. So the, the whole thing, um, his entire career that stretched from 2001 to about 2010, 
2011. He's just he, he's he's really incredible offensively. Yeah, and people forget that those Dallas teams uh, as well were some of the best offenses uh, in NBA history uh, relative to the league when that was really a nadir for uh, point per possession scoring overall. Right, right, right. So exactly. Nash, Nash, um, you had at 19. Um, you had w- Wilt at nine. Miller was 29th, which I think would be a lot higher than a lot of people would have. What about the people who were a little bit lower than maybe uh, would have been expected? Um, ones from the list or guys that didn't even make the cut? <laughs> well, I guess we'll, I guess we'll do we'll do the the list for now. Well, so Moses Malone at number 24 yep, yep. was a yep. guy who I think would, would most people would probably have in the teens as a guy. You know, I, I think he's probably the lowest of anyone who won three MVPs. Uh, that's for yep, sure. Yep, yep. So, so why was it that he wasn't as high for you as for some others? Because he's a guy that I think, uh, in part maybe because he passed away and didn't really have much visibility at the end of it, his career. You know, people don't know as much about, but you know, there are a lot of people who obviously are very high on him. Well, he's he's very good, obviously. Um, but you're you're right. That's a lower ranking than um, he's typically given. I think the first thing about Moses is offensively, he he's a fairly unique offensive player. He's he's got no ability to pass whatsoever like he cannot um make his pass to him was a shot off the glass to him yes that's yes the, exactly that's the old joke right um so that's number one um he did get a lot of offense through his offensive rebounding which is very valuable and i think that's where i sort of give him a lot of credit but the other big thing is his defense he's he's when you're a you know 611 center and you want to be considered an all-time two-way player you also have to have some high-end level of defense not that he was a bad defensive player but it's hard for me to see on film or excuse me or in the data um sort of where he's providing a lot of defensive impact yeah I think and he, he doesn't really have the type of i mean if you just look at him he doesn't have the type of body uh, or length or, or explosiveness that you would necessarily associate with some of the guys that we know are, are the great defenders today with having a, you know more metrics at our disposal right 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 exactly um and i think he gets a lot of historical credit for the three mvps um I, I don't love legislating MVPs historically, but uh, certainly one of his MVPs on a on a 500-ish team. Uh, it was a it was a very strange vote if you go back and look at it. And then in yeah, '83, so, so he won it. He won it in what 79, 81, and 83 off the top of my head. Uh right, because 80, 82 was Dr. J, um, and 80 was 80 Kareem's last one. Yeah, I think. And I'm sure yeah, we have 80, 80 we internet. Last, we can check. This yeah, out. there's no way we could possibly look this up let's just like continue <laughs> to like quiz not, each other it's not like so. we're near a computer or anything <laughs> yeah. um <laughs> Yeah, well, but, 83, so, 83 and 81, I know he had. The, the third one is the one that I'm missing, and I want to say it was 79, because uh, it definitely wasn't after 83. So, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that that's what it was. But anyway. Uh, well, that's, a, that's yeah. the second thing about, about Moses is, is his number of high-end years was fairly short right. for one of these all-time guys. Um, and whether that was conditioning or lethargy or, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but the 84 team was considered kind of a disaster at the time. They had a they had a bounce back year in 85. Uh, and then once he kind of leaves Philadelphia, he's really in like second stage of his career mode. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's he's no longer uh, a stud. Um, and then he retires and people look back and they go, well, let's see. He's got three MVPs. He's got a title on one of the great teams ever. And he played like 39 years in the NBA and the ABA. 
NBA. So he checks a lot of boxes. I think he's got to be one of the best ever. And I think that's the typical approach to him. But using this method, he he falls short not only in peak season, but in, in longevity too. Yeah, longevity in terms of like longevity of like actually, you know, really elite Actual valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and off, so he, he didn't really pass. So you, a part of your problem then is that he's not really creating that much for others. And, you know, as a one-on-one scorer, he wasn't like unbelievable. You know, I think he was good. But then, you know, the offensive rebounding was enormous. And I think maybe part of the reason too, perhaps, that uh, people gave him so much credit is just like that was one of those things that was so incredible that just people just didn't know how to deal with it it just stuck out so much it was so demoralizing for the opposition that maybe that had an outside effect on how it was viewed historically yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if even just going through the film, his offensive rebounding is absurd. Uh, you know, his his ability to leap quickly. And then another big thing with, with offensive rebounding and guys like Barkley had it too, um, the use of the hips and just like how he would kind of just snuggle the backside in and clear out space. And yeah, you're like, wait, how did yeah. he get there? I, I would call that the use of the ass personally. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yes, I, 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 I know what you mean. He, he had this move where he, you know, if a shot went up, he would point his toes towards the baseline. He'd be almost under the backboard and as the shots in the air he would just slam his butt into guys and carve out space right. so that he's just right there under the rim and the ball could just fall right to him it, it was really awesome uh, i tried to do that when i was in high school unfortunately i weighed about a buck 70 back then so it <laughs> didn't, didn't work quite as well for me but every once well, in a while if someone was watching the shot i could like really slam into him and maybe move him a little bit you know i don't and the thing is i don't know if you can do that anymore because if you're big and you get yourself situated way down on the baseline under the hoop how are you going to get back in transition d you cook coach is going to be yelling at you the whole way back yeah so you know the other other tendencies of the game that have shifted over the years like that that kind of make that a very a very unique um sort of uh, phenomenon in nba history the last guy that i thought deviated the most maybe from the conventional wisdom you had david robinson at number 15 and he to me is is uh some of the, the stats have always seemed to kind of like a little bit more and correct me if i'm wrong i think your methodology did not focus as much on playoff success championship success as some others just with, with the idea that you wanted to kind of be a little bit more context independent right right um but but so why does robinson rate so highly uh at number 15 so to be clear um i care about the fact that you can still play in the playoff yeah but whether you end up on a team that wins that's what i was trying to, right, to right. separate from um robinson he's another guy who took me a long time to come around on because i think again we tend to focus on the box score and we tend to focus on uh, his value or even certain bigs value um, as a score offensively and we leave the defensive side apart one he was one of the best defensive centers ever I mean I don't think a lot of people dispute that he just has all the tools um, pops on film uh, all the numbers historically just a phenomenal defensive force in the middle so he always had that going where he fell short was he had these really sexy regular season box score numbers and then you get in the playoffs and they would shrink a little bit. Um, most players have some small fall off when they go into postseason. I think that's a, a natural function of playing first harder defenses. And then second, um, getting to game plan for someone for seven games, getting to game plan against an offense for seven games. In Robinson's case, it was more severe. And this brings us full circle back to portability because 
before ever thinking about those concepts, you look at this team in the 90s before Tim Duncan comes and you say, oh, I see Robinson can't carry a team. But what he can do really well on offense is be your second best offense player. He's a good and willing passer. He's a fantastic offensive rebounder. He moves without the ball. He can play pick and pop and pick and roll. So you get a pretty good finisher back in the day. Couldn't shoot the three, but they didn't have centers shooting threes back then. We're going to have to like explain that to young people one day that all centers <laughs> didn't shoot threes. Um, and so what you end up with is you end up with a guy who's basically a massive two-way talent who probably did it for longer than people realize. And then the last few years of his career, when Duncan was a little bit more the focal point of the offense, um, his defensive impact was enormous still. He really doesn't trail off until his last year or two. So you throw on another, what is that, 98? It's another four years um, where he was a really, really good player. And you end up with a career that I think it surprised me too. When you look at it, you're like, wow, it's hard. It's hard to take a lot of guys over this career. Do you make any kind of an allowance for the fact that he didn't come into the league until he was 24 just because of the, the naval uh, obligations? Whereas, you know, so especially in this era now, it, Moses came in earlier or, you know, Kobe Bryant or LeBron or those guys are going to get four more years, five more years than some of these guys who just, you know, were in an era where they couldn't come into the league that early. Yeah, I, I don't. And that's another area where I, I feel like it's an overly rigid criteria, but it serves the purpose. You know, it's you you can then make that mental curving on your own. Um, yeah, because because you don't know what would have happened to those guys in you, those. You know, I mean, you, you either did it or you didn't at some level. Like you, you can project a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you, it's hard to just give guys additional seasons that they didn't play, uh, even if it wasn't because of injury, even if it was, you know, just due to the circumstance. Right, right, right. And I think magic uh, historically is that uh, ultimate example of this because he's usually up near the the goat conversation and people say well you know how can i how can i really penalize him he when he left in 91 he was still phenomenal um and that was a largely political thing where maybe nowadays it wouldn't even be revealed that he had hiv and he would just keep playing so i, I don't uh the only adjustment i make is a, a small basic linear adjustment that says the later you came into the league um the less your longevity sort of uh counts because yeah. guys right guys now are playing longer and longer so relative to that era which is what i'm trying to evaluate 10 years is no longer you got to get 11 years to get 10 years or 12 years to get 11 years ever yeah and magic uh, was number 10 uh, suffice to say he would have been higher had it he not lost yeah. those years yeah definitely magic um i mean just the 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 level he was playing at when he left was he was still in the thick of his prime and even when you see him five years later with his comeback in 96 he was still like a competent he's just so uh, good at reading the game um I, I think he gave up a lot i think he'd be much higher yeah and we, we've got lots more to talk about here but the last topic i want to get to for this show is who was really significantly better or worse in the playoffs than might have been expected and then were you able to discern any patterns about types of players that were better or worse in the playoffs so uh miller was incredible as i mentioned yeah um the other guy there there let's see there are two guys in the top eight um that i i will skip over for now <laughs> who also <laughs> i won't i won't reveal who those guys are yet um but out of guys who weren't in the top eight uh jerry west was a guy who improved his scoring and efficiency a little bit again the the normal sort of expectation when you go into the playoffs is your efficiency drops a couple percentage points your scoring may be the same or tail off just a little bit so to go up is always a, a pretty impressive sign um 
And then there were two other guys, if you sort of talk about like top 50, top 75 talents of all time. Uh, Tracy McGrady was one. Who, who, who actually, went up in the playoffs. He went up in the playoffs. Yes. Yeah, so you can see how your your impressions and your biases that you form. Sure. Um, it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Now, we should mention that he started relatively low in most seasons. He was not a high efficiency player. Yeah. Uh, the other guy who went up, same story. Low efficiency player. He gets in the playoffs is the original Isaiah Thomas. He actually cranks his volume up a little bit and basically maintains the same efficiency, which is pretty impressive. So that's a group of guys. And then I'll give you a couple more who maintain because I think we can we can see an emerging pattern here. Um, Kobe from his like 2006, 2007 to 2011. And I think I mentioned this in his profile. He's basically holds his regular season numbers, which is really good. Two other guys that did that, Allen Iverson and Dwayne Wade. Now, I don't know about you, Nate. When I look at that group, yeah. I see a lot of incredibly skilled wings who have robust, diverse scoring attacks, who also, to maybe to their detriment in the regular season, already take hard shots anyway. That's sort of the pattern I see. But you, you tell me what you think after hearing that that list of names. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's really interesting because, and those guys kind of fall into the category we we're talking about earlier, you might say of, although Miller and West maybe not as much, but of guys who, you know, create a lot of shots, don't take right. great shots, who might be be uh when you talk about floor raisers but the the also and, and maybe just because of the type of shots that they take just can never be that efficient uh overall mm-hmm. even in the regular season but then they also just because they can make hard shots you can only take so much away from them and then even against harder playoff defenses when perhaps more of those difficult shots need to be taken that would be my, my hypothesis those guys are capable of making those shots whereas maybe some other guys can't right exactly there's a there's an inelasticity to the game um, that I think m- might might be perceived as a negative in the regular season, but uh, comes back to provide sort of like this resilience, uh, as I've also called it before, in the playoffs. So, b- by the way, a-, a current guy who's probably going to pick up a, a-, a Maurice Podoloff trophy shortly, James Harden, last couple of years, his defensive numbers, I mean, his offensive numbers in the playoffs have been relatively similar to the regular season. Uh, I think he has a reputation of completely falling apart, but it statistically has not been the case. Yeah. I think he's had maybe some clutch failures and also uh, just that game six. Um, And and then the years before that, too, I mean, in in that Portland series that they lost in 2014, I think it was way below his regular season numbers uh, as well. Um, So maybe that's that's part of that. And then going back to the 2012 finals is another thing that people point to as well. And I don't think he was that good in their 2013 series against uh, OKC either. Uh, So who, who are the the guys who fall off the most in the playoffs oh well the the first one that really stands out statistically is john stockton um he's a extremely high efficiency low volume type of scorer and kind of the entire the entire profile falls off in the playoffs for him his his efficiency drops um it's not like he's cranking up his scoring uh, his assists go down i mean the the whole thing for him um takes a pretty severe nosedive uh carl malone his teammate also has some troubles i talked about that in his profile where uh his you know getting into the lane and finishing and getting easy buckets for him is a challenge um 
Kevin Durant's another guy who who kind of has had some statistical between his like incredible regular seasons. There's a pretty big fall off. Uh, and Westbrook. I mean, uh, David Robinson. Sorry, Westbrook is also as well. So I guess he's on my mind. But yeah, um, yeah, that's kind of the the traditional group of um, guys who see a see a significant fall off in the postseason. And then when you look and break it down, I mean, I I I, I want to hear your thoughts too. But I, I see patterns where when I look at Stockton, he had a hard time creating his own offense. When I look at Malone, he had a hard time finishing uh, in the paint and a, a great jump shooter, but there's only so much you can rely on with your jump shot. Uh, Durant, I, my thing with Durant really is sometimes his handle just doesn't let him, he doesn't read defenses super well. So if you throw complex coverages at him, it kind of, it kind of throws him a little bit. Um, and then we, we obviously talked about Robinson and Westbrook already. Yeah. To me, I think, and Stockton and Malone are an interesting one, right? Because they seem to be so system based a, a lot of times and for malone so much of what he would do was running the floor really hard or ducking in getting great deep post position right, right. which stockton would then find him on the one thing actually i disagree with you and I, I thought you were a little too dismissive of the ability to throw great post entry passes maybe as a former post player i just uh, appreciate that a little bit more but i do think that uh there's maybe more value added if you can really do that well um uh, forgive me if i'm uh, misstating your position there because I, I think i remember you ding stocked and you're like oh well a lot of these are like post entry passes and you know if it's just like all right i'm gonna hold it there and just throw it in he's got great position that's one thing but if the guy's front it or the guy ducks in real quickly like i think so many players miss those passes to me to the point almost that like no one even ever ducks in anywhere in the nba these days nate i thought we were friends <laughs> no well, uh, no did i did i, know, did I misstate I, what you said or, or or are we just in disagreement um no i i just i have may have understated it uh and, and that's you know it's been it's been wonderful uh, i've been trying to keep up with the the feedback which has been incredible um but what's interesting is i agree with about 75 percent of the criticisms i hear and that's a perfect example right like post entries i'll agree with you post entries can have uh, a decent amount of value so sometimes what ends up happening is uh you write the profile and stuff gets cut or edited or reworked and something just may be understated so yeah, yeah I, I i didn't mean to uh i didn't mean to gloss over that for for old john <laughs> well because he was you're, you're, yeah. you're spot on right like some of his post entries were fantastic and i think there was a synergy there between stockton and malone and of course to the tenor of the piece i was sort of emphasizing that the the pick and roll synergies are not the way we remember them going no. back in time like nash and amari had the pick and roll synergies that we attribute to stockton and malone but that was a totally different thing yeah no i mean a lot of it was just you know screening off the ball flex cuts right. like that i mean that's what they ran back then more, that much was their more so that was than, their thing yeah but but the, yeah. the, the point that i was making initially was you know both of those guys whether it was stockton who you know seemed to more capitalize on converting you know only the most judicious opportunities extremely well uh but didn't really ever take bad shots or create you know what we call bad shots or even you know medium difficulty shots and then malone transition quick post-ups duck-ins uh you know as opposed to really going one-on-one -on -one in the post and creating really efficient shots it's much easier to take those things away in the playoffs would be my hypothesis that you're, you're playing harder you're more locked in but they're not going to kind of just get you the way they do in the regular season by like playing harder than you or just being like a little bit smarter uh you know we don't go against these guys every night so they have this great system and they're going to beat us type of thing right agree agree i think sometimes we can overstate that effect but yeah i mean even right over the course of if you're out there for 80 possessions in a postseason game or 85 possessions you just take away a couple of those cross screens 
are just you never give up that easy bucket um, and that'll ding your percentages over time yeah and there's a i think the spurs in recent vintage you know people talk about oh man you never count out the spurs i actually think these spurs teams i mean that 2014 was awesome 2013 you know they lost a, a team that i thought was an all-time great team um so but generally I mean, you would have to say that the spurs almost never overachieve their regular season performance in the playoffs you know i, I think they have n- uh, the the talk is always oh greg popovich doesn't value the regular season but i can't remember the last series that they won when they didn't have home court advantage i think maybe it's been like you know one in this entire era that they've had um so it's really like they seem to be a team that gets a little bit worse in the playoffs because there's all this low-hanging fruit that you can take away during the regular season whether it's you know cleaning up the defensive glass or getting back in transition or just not making mistakes and so so many buckets in the regular season are are just the result of teams not playing hard or or whatever and so if you're reliant on just taking away that low-hanging fruit for the other teams or getting the low-hanging fruit yourself that can go away in the playoffs you you may or may not be onto something that maybe we want to talk about in a in another conversation (laughs) all right man well this has been a lot of fun looking forward to having you back on once the rest of the list comes out and we can uh we can argue a little bit more and uh arouse people's ire with the with the rankings especially in that top group uh but this is awesome uh, tell people once again about your book and twitter and backpicks.com and all that book is thinking basketball it's available on amazon in paperback and kindle um backpicks.com is where you can find the top 40 and as of now as of today <laughs> i am uh, subject to change i am lg35 on twitter um i i'm probably more responsive there than anywhere else so i uh, always love to uh chat about this stuff with people so thanks this is this has been super fun too and i look forward to uh to the next episode all right likewise thanks this is great Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house. 
Get that 100-night trial. They're 10 to 15-year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us all right here we go part two as i mentioned in the intro my audio quality is a little miserable on this one hope y'all can deal with it you know you're here to listen to what ben has to say anyway so here's part two where ben and i talk about the top eight players of all time that we didn't get to in part one all right this is long overdue in fact the title of the email that i sent to this guest asking him to come on the show somewhat sheepishly uh was long overdue follow-up pod because uh lots of people have been asking for this at the time when he was doing his greatest of all time rankings he only uh had done up until the top eight and we were gonna have him on again and then the playoffs started and it was a truncated off season for me with the wedding but he's been kind enough to wait until now ben taylor how you doing man Good to be back. I, I I'm worried I set the bar too high in in the first go around. So uh, yeah, a lot to live up to today. I think. So you thought your pod was that good, huh? No, I didn't. <laughs> it was just the the feedback. I was like, oh man, what have I done? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you what you did was leaving them wanting more by not having done those top eight. So uh, let me see here. Where where do we want to start? Uh, I think I want to, before we get into those top eight and those who have read uh, his series on backpicks.com know it already, but uh, we will get to that to be sure. But I, I wanted to start again, and we talked about this a little bit the first time, but it might be good since it's been, uh, oh, about six months now to just talk about what your methodology was. And if you want to really get into it, we, we talked about it more the first time, but it, you know, he does a lot of 
plus minus work and stuff that really hadn't been available before especially for the guys uh who were the pre-data ball era as he calls it 1997 is the first year we have plus minus data but ben goes back and is able to estimate that uh, from earlier on uh but would an accurate summary of kind of your criteria maybe rather than your method be if you started this guy's career the same year he came into the league but he had average teammates around him for his career how many championships would you expect him to win and then basically you're ranking him uh, on that criteria is is that a a fair summary or or uh, is that too simple no almost I, i think the only thing to adjust there is that it's not just average teammates so yeah you know interestingly when i started the process years ago of like thinking about it from this perspective the first calculations i did were with average teammates and at a certain point i got around when i when i sort of developed the full like corp that is championships over replacement player i said okay you have to look at how guys affect different teams right because players aren't just being slotted on 500 clubs and then making them contenders or whatnot so you look at the whole distribution of teams and you know some guys that means they're going to be on really good teams some guys are going to be on poor teams and from that essentially i I say what's the championship odds on a random team and we can quibble about you know we can quibble about like how random it is right because after a while you can argue well it's not that random because they're going to try to try to build around the player Um, yeah yeah but but that was the idea well and i guess that's interesting too because yeah if you say average yeah random probably is is a better way of saying it but in some ways it doesn't really matter maybe what your performance would be with average teammates because there's just about nobody in average nba history who with average teammates is going to win a championship and if all we're talking about is hey if you you know what are your chances of winning a championship so really the better question and this is one that you've done pioneering work on is all right if you have good teammates how good are you right how good is your team uh and and so that really seems like more what the inquiry is uh, at this point right and that's where the the concept of portability or how well a guy's skills scale up as the team gets better that that's where that became such a critical issue because to your point you you almost essentially never win a title with poor teammates it just doesn't happen okay or average teammates every once in a blue moon you'll have a 2003 tim duncan or something and they had a pretty good cast in terms of defense and and role players uh but but in general and they also had a pretty lucky run that that year yes yes chris weber getting hurt dirk Nowitzki getting hurt right right i mean there's just only a few instances in the last 30 or 40 years of teams of that quality winning so to your point it rarely happens and instead it's like okay how how are your how's your value going to be maintained as you play on better and better teams and that's really where the power of that idea came from it was looking at these distributions and saying like okay wait a second you can be the greatest floor raiser ever but you're still not getting close to winning a title so yeah that's that's the idea yeah, and that's a concept that I think I had articulated intuitively on the show going back a, a couple of years. I talked about DeMarcus Cousins, for example, as a guy who can get you from 25 to 40 wins or 20 to 35 wins, but because of his usage and because of, you know, you, he can get you from being the 25th best offense to the 15th best offense, but because of his defensive limitations, his usage, his turnovers, uh, at that time, he wasn't really as good of a shooter outside, so he probably didn't fit as well with other players you really wonder about whether he could be a 
a guy who would help. And that's actually part of why I don't think he's going to help Golden State that much this year uh, because he kind of provides a weak link to attack defensively. But, you know, those are some of the questions that you come into. And then, you know, you have things like how well does he shoot when he's off the ball? How well does he defend? You know, is he going to take away from others because you don't have to guard him when he doesn't have the ball in his hands? Questions like that really, I think, play into your list. And it's one of the first lists I've seen. I mean, the only one that takes those into account. Um, Right. Yeah. And the next thing I wanted to talk about too here is the idea of longevity versus peak. That's something that we've been discussing a lot. Kevin Pelton uh, and uh, Royce Webb, when I had them on a couple of years ago, we talked about that and how you weighed it. And it seems like one of your thoughts here is that longevity may be just underrated in these discussions yeah I, I think generally the 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 sort of rubrics we come up with intuitively to structure these things really shoot down longevity uh i, I discuss it in the series post-mortem uh sort of balancing some of the traditional views and then when you actually start to lay out like where this value comes from i think one of the easiest ways to see it is with these guys that play forever reggie miller john stockton kareem whatever and it's like yeah there's still all-star level players at the end of their career when they retire the team gets worse because you can't just automatically replace an all-star or even a sub all right and i think that's where it gets lost in the shuffle is there's something in the way we want to simplify and kind of think about these players historically that allows us to say okay i'm only going to look at like his best five years or his eight-year prime i've heard people say i don't i don't care about seasons where you're not an all nba player and when you do that you really really start to minimize longevity on top of the fact that we may kind of uh, even when we think about it underrated intuitively, I think that's a lot of my research has led me to a place where it's like, man, it, it's hard to provide value for that 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, et cetera year. Yeah. And maybe there's almost this feeling in our minds, which is probably is not rational that because those guys who play for so long, you know, Malone would be another guy there. We'll see where LeBron ends up. Uh, those guys who play for so long are outliers. It's almost like it's unfair to compare them to sort of the more normal player who is going to have maybe 10 great seasons. Um, right. So I, I think there's, it's like, well, we don't really know how to do this. These guys don't really fit into the mold. And so, all right, we're just going to not really count those extra seasons and we'll just compare their best 10 seasons to these other guys' best 10 seasons. Right. And and I don't want to get too philosophical as I've known to do, but I think you're you're hitting <laughs> at, right, you're hitting at this thing where it's like different people have different criteria, but they don't explicitly state it. And that's yeah. a very, that's a very human nature thing. It, it's not our job always to, to perfectly articulate our own criteria. But I think at the end of the day, people are comparing, doing a little bit of apples and oranges comparison sometimes where it's like someone when they talk about the greatest ever really does only mean at his best for some sustained period and and i i think i bring this up at the end of the series and like this idea of an eight-year rule or something like that it's like i I care about how good you are when you were at your best but it can't be a fluke and after that everything else is a wash yeah you need enough seasons to kind of cement yourself into the consciousness and then of course there's also the bias of well you have to have really been in play off contention in the finals ideally winning championships to sort of again cement that impression into people's heads in a way that you know someone that we're going to talk a lot about today is Kevin Garnett and you know he just wasn't 
there, you know, it was really only two, three seasons, two, three seasons really in which he was in the conference finals or better in his career at his highest level. And maybe even only two seasons, 08 and 04 there. So, you know, it, it becomes more difficult. Uh, now, one thing that you also articulated in that kind of wrap up, which to me seems a little bit at loggerheads with the idea of the longevity is this kind of exponential curve for great seasons that, you know, if you, and I forget the exact name that you have just, but you know, if you're going to say, Hey, here's a guy who adds, you know, eight points per game to your team, which would be, you know, just an unbelievable, like all time great season that having a guy like that versus having a guy who adds five points per game to your team, the guy who's adding eight points per game to your team, it's not a linear relationship with how you're how likely you are to win a championship uh you know from five to eight that you're much more likely if you have that eight player than if you have that five player right 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 it's i actually it's funny you pick five and eight i think off the top of my head five and eight are closer to double in distance so five is like near 18 or 20 percent and eight starts to get into like the high 30s yeah and that's your chance of winning a championship in a given year if you have on a random yes on a random team exactly um um, so yeah, it, it's they're at odds, but they automatically balance each other. There's no sort of philosophical weighting that needs to take place. It's like, well, in this particular uh, set of criteria, five whatever it is, five seasons of Reggie Miller equals one peak Bill Walton season, or, or whatever it comes out to. Well, and also I think it does what you just said about your chances of winning a championship in a given year. I mean, so eight basically. I mean, that'd be you know your best That's ever best. Michael Jordan yeah. season. You know your oh nine LeBron James. James, you know, maybe an early Kareem year or something like that. Uh, and even then, you only have a 40% chance of winning a championship in a given year with, you know, one of the five best seasons of all time. You know, I, I think that's really important for this analysis for the people who, you know, obviously people on NBA Twitter dismiss the whole oh, rings, rings, rings. That's all that matters idea. But that's important to note that, you know, if you're even if you are playing at the greatest of all time level in an individual season, you probably if you're playing on a random team with random teammates only have about a 40 percent chance of winning a championship in that season. And if you're playing at a level which, you know, that plus five level, which is probably what, maybe there's 40 seasons like that ever. Is that, is that accurate? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, certainly probably more seasons, probably 20, I want to say 20 or 25 guys, I think, who probably have a, a peak in that range and then some of them have okay. multiple seasons of course yeah okay so so maybe there's 60 of those seasons or or so but then you know the, the 60 greatest seasons in NBA history you only have a 20 percent chance of winning the championship uh, if you've got one of those guys on your team with uh, random talents um and, and you know right, yeah, 40, 40s even 40s on the high side yeah, um, yeah. I, I think i think the highest season i ended up with was in the low 30s and we'll we'll obviously talk about who that is if we get to them um but you know it's it's there's some you know there's a range basically let's put it that way i i can't dogmatically say like the best season ever is 33.2 percent or something but it's in it's in that range 30 to 35 percent and if you're a little more liberal or someone someone was better than i give them credit for or something like that uh, you could be closer to 40 but i think the take home that you're trying to make especially with the rings crowd is that you can't just there used to be a saying when we were growing up right like michael jordan you could put him on any team and win a title and the evidence for yeah, that is any team except no 
<laughs> except yeah. half the half the Eastern Conference and uh, the yeah. bottom six teams and, in and the, the West. And uh, the, the 1985 <laughs> through 1990 Chicago Bulls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well played, very well played. I, I th- one last one last note on rings, and, and I was remiss not to. I had a little section in in my book thinking basketball on rings, and and I was remiss to leave this out. I think rings would be a fantastic scientific measurement in terms of methodology if they ran the season like a hundred thousand times oh sure and and they shuffled all the lineups i think then if you had like one single metric that you wanted to hone in on rings would tell you what you want to know but because there's only one year and so few combinations like the guys we're going to talk about today played with so few combinations of teammates so you're kind of locked in and rings doesn't really tell you much all right, we, we got a lot more to get here with Ben, and we're going to do a home and home. So when I go on his show, we can talk about more of some of these philosophical things. But we got to get to that top eight. All right, so number eight on Ben's list is a uh, you know obviously we didn't talk about him last time. Is a player who I think would be much lower for most people. Pretty much any other list that I've seen has this guy. You know, probably the highest would be like 13th or 14th, and that's Kevin Garnett. So I'll give you the floor here to talk about why it is that you have him higher than anyone else when you consider that really, you know, as we just talked about, when he was the engine of his team, you know, there were really only had two conference finals appearances, 04 and 08. I noticed you left out 2012 as a conference finals appearance as well, well and, and, and 2010 for that matter yeah because <laughs> I, I felt that. like by that point offensively he just you know was not anywhere after that injury in 09 he really just was nowhere near the same as an offensive player though certainly defensively he was awesome but maybe that's something else we'll talk about too is the, is the uh you know that that a lot of people underrate defense but uh so that i mean i assume that's reason number one maybe uh because he is one of the greatest defensive players of all time right yeah 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 i think there and i've talked about this in the series there's a tendency to underrate defense historically he's one of the greatest defensive players ever i i think let me let me take a step back why is he so underrated from this perspective why why do i have him so much higher than sort of the traditional conventional approach i would say that if we were to go in a time machine go back 30 years to 1988 it's the dawn of unrestricted free agency uh we're gonna say okay the league is gonna add a bunch more teams and it's going to get international. We're going to add a bunch of players and expand the talent pool. What would a guy look like? What would be the criteria if we could go into that chemistry lab for a guy to be a great player, but be totally unrecognized as being a great player? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say, I would say, okay, number one, he would have to play in a small market. The free agency rules would have to deter anyone from going to said small market. He would, as a player, excel in traditionally unmeasured areas like defense and, I don't know, passing or big man playmaking. Um, he would not be a 30 point per game scorer who jack shots relentlessly. And he would need to be in a terrible team situation filled with front office ineptitude. You know, maybe one of his teammates dies tragically and if he has any all-star teammates they have devastating injuries that end their career but does that sound like a fair prognostication for said player yeah and, and maybe also they uh lose four out of five first round draft picks uh due to uh league action uh with uh the joe smith saga right. as well right, right. I, I mean right. maybe that that's sorry that was a little too specific for your your construct there but <laughs> but nonetheless yeah i i mean that's uh that's a great way to put it and, and i think that's the, the short of it i, I think he checks every box for having this wild discrepancy between and, and then of course to answer your original question uh, what 
what makes him great. A phenomenal passer, one of the greatest defenders ever, a versatile defender. Uh, I, I think I called him a, a T-cell watching him on film. He's got this motor, and I think the motor is underrated in terms of just how much energy he exerts uh, while he's on the court, especially defensively. And he was a good scorer. So you have this guy who's a great balance between a uh, good offensive player, great defensive player. He's got the longevity. I mean, people just overlook the traditional stuff with him because of all of the things I just mentioned with the team losing and the first round and missing the playoffs. And they overlook like the guy made 15 all-star teams. He's he's one of the only players ever to have defensive player of the year, most valuable player. Um, he's got a bunch more things. I think he's got an all-star game MVP. The, the list goes on and on in terms of the credentials like 25,000 points, X number of thousands of assists and rebounds. He's one of the only guys in that club. So yeah, it's just an incredible career. Well, and also, I mean, this isn't really part of what your discussion is, but a guy who really could have been really good in any era, like in this era, he could have been just an incredible center. He probably would have gotten his range out to the three-point line, which for whatever reason he never did. I think perhaps due to stubbornness, you know, Tim Bontemps talks about how he used to drain threes during his Nets days, uh, you know, in warm-ups, but just would would never shoot him. Uh, And, you know, also just his scalability is awesome, right? I mean, because you can there are some guys you could say, oh, you know, he had no talent around them, but look what he did. He he pushed this Minnesota team up to 50 wins, you know, but maybe that's just your your classic floor raiser, as you would say. But KG, clearly, as he showed in Boston, and then just if you look at his skill set, being a good passer, being a, an excellent shooter, uh, obviously a, a great defensive player, being a guy who doesn't really have any weaknesses. I mean, I think that's a big part of being, you know, a, a scalable player. Uh, you know, you he could fit in if he had just not gotten such a a terrible draw in terms of his teammates when it did come time to scale he would have been awesome there too had he had different teammates well it's interesting he he was developing a three-point shot and the other thing is he came into the league so young right he was an all-star in his second year at at 19 to 20 years old and he was developing a three and he moved away from the three and just instead for the era became a pick and pop or spacing long two-point shooter And, and for the metrics that we have going back over 20 years now one of the best outside shooting big men ever uh you know, in the 80 percentile uh, for free throws. I forget where his career free throw percentage ended up, but a very just a really good shooter. Uh, so, yeah, when you think about translating error, which isn't really my thing, it's like not hard to imagine that he could have a three point shot and extend that jumper out another foot or two. Um, go, go ahead. Yeah, there, there was a time I remember. I think they played like some preseason games in Japan. In Japan. In Japan. Was, yes. You remember this? Like, it, it was, oh, I mean, that it was, was the, the first the first games. He was like bombing threes. Like people were like, oh, shit, he's going to like KG's getting a three now and then he just never shot him again basically after that it was, i think it was 99 i think it was uh after the lockout season i that was really when he was sort of put on my radar um as as a guy who was like okay this guy is getting really really good and yeah he was shooting threes in those games and then just went away from it but i, I wanted to get to something else that you mentioned which one of the biggest pieces of evidence for garnett to me is what happened when he went to boston oh yeah because and i and i speak about this in his profile his value so just just to level set for those who aren't aware he's got really really good box score stats but then when you look at the plus minus stats he's arguably the king lebron has put up really the only guy who's put up better numbers in the last 20 something years and he does very well across the board depending on how you triangulate his value and so he did this in 2003 in uh minnesota with that team 2004 they flipped the roster around a little bit they bring in sam cassell 
and Latrell Sprewell on his last legs, even though he's still a big name. They they uh, get Irvin Johnson and Hassel to play big minutes as defensive fillers, and they kind of have a more balanced roster. Well, again, uh, there's a number of guys. I know private metrics that I've heard people talk about. They have 2004 as the best season ever. Uh, there's a lot of plus minus studies that have 2004 as the best season ever. By ever, I mean 20 something years that we have on record. Yeah. And then his numbers are still very good in Minnesota, but he goes to Boston and he kind of does it again with a totally new team. And the shocking thing to me, and this is where you get into this scalability idea, is he does it when there are concerns about, oh, there's only one ball. And it's like Pierce, yeah. Allen, all these other players, it didn't matter. He just fit right in, put out one of the best defensive seasons ever. And so he's got this history of doing it in different environments. And that's really, really important to me. Really impressive. Yeah. And obviously he had a, a rotating cast around him in his early days in Minnesota. I think the biggest criticism of KG is to me is could he be the engine uh you know if he is your best offensive player are you gonna have like a great offense even the those boston teams i think that 08 team you know and granted they had like rondo out there uh you know who was not a good offense player certainly at that time and i think has always been overrated and kendrick perkins you know i mean those are two guys in the starting lineup who are not going to help you much but you know i i can't remember where the offensive rankings were of some of those minnesota teams I, i'm guessing probably the 04 team was really good uh but generally like if he's your number one guy uh are you gonna does he make a great offense by himself the way some of these other guys in nba history do but of course he does plenty of the other stuff too i mean you and you can make the argument that you know at least in terms of offense he's better on a great team as kind of a second banana but he's certainly a first banana defensively uh and i think another point that you've made too is that you know especially as guys get into the back ends of your career it's kind of hard to find those second bananas those second bananas can add a lot to your championships because if you have a first banana you're not necessarily going to be able to win a championship unless you have those other guys around them and finding your kevin garnett or i mean this is or a draymond green or a clay thompson kg is obviously way better than those guys but those that's finding that specific mold of player who goes with your first banana can almost be as difficult at times we're, we're in i think total agreement on this one um I, I think garnett if you have him as your best offensive player you shouldn't expect a phenomenal offense you'll get a good offense and that's what the that's what the evidence shows on his teams but you ideally if you want to build a juggernaut you want a guy who's going to be a primary offensive engine have garnett as your secondary guy and then that carry especially those post prime seasons it's like yeah having having post prime kevin garnett as your second or third offensive play, best offensive player that, that's a really good situation well speaking of really good situations let's move to tim duncan who was uh in many ways uh, other than the small market kind of the opposite uh uh you know he was gestated into this amazing situation uh, in san antonio certainly he deserved a ton of credit and you could say that san antonio was probably luckier to have him than he was to have san antonio but nonetheless he comes in he's winning i think 56 games immediately he's got david robinson who you know i think was 15th uh, on your list, as I recall, and you know, it was still playing at a level probably higher than people appreciated uh, in those late '90s seasons. Uh, but Duncan at seven, uh, I think maybe to start is why is he a little bit higher 
than Garnett. And, you know, I'll give you the floor again to just talk about what it was that made Tim Duncan so awesome to be at that type of level where, again, I think some people wouldn't have him this high into the top 10, although I certainly would. Well, it's interesting. My little my little note next to Duncan on the list here is opposite situation of KGs, which is what you, <laughs> yeah. which is what you open with. Uh, but I also think that's what makes them, to me, and I'm biased because I, I grew up and watched their careers, I, this is what makes them the greatest comparison in NBA history. There's so many similarities. There are some differences. And then the whole thing, at least for the bulk of their prime, took place in these opposite situations where, where Minnesota is the poster child of ineptitude. And San Antonio, I mean, what a franchise San Antonio Popovich and Robinson into Duncan and you know whatever it is 26 yeah. consecutive I mean it's incredible you, you, you're getting two Hall of Famers drafting you know 28th right. and 57th in uh right. you know 1999 and 2001 exactly and 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 so you know I, al- I always wonder like if you ran Duncan's career backwards what would the narrative be I don't mean the the teams from the last couple years I mean during his prime because because there was some issues in 2009 and 2008 as his prime ended. And in 2007, Tony Parker got the MVP of the finals, which is kind of like the cousin of Paul Pierce getting the MVP in 08, even though Garnett was clearly the best Celtic. Um, you go back to 2005, he really struggled from the floor against the Pistons. It, you know, we don't have to re- relive all the, the narrative stuff, but the way narratives build are fascinating. And these guys had these narratives build in opposite directions. The, I, I'm filibustering here because... I, the answer is, depending on the day, I don't know which one of these guys should be ranked higher. I, I, I think they're that close. I kind of like KG a, a little bit better, I think. I, I think he could translate over more. Well, I, I guess the, the only thing is that in an earlier era, you know, KG maybe couldn't have played center and Tim Duncan probably could have played center in, in any era. Although Tim couldn't have played power forward, you know, in this era. Again, I realize you're not doing as much era comparison as I kind of like to do. I've got to add some kind of a value here. <laughs> on this show so uh, <laughs> well when you did the expert when, when, when you did the podcast a couple years ago yeah did you have where did you have these guys oh man i can't remember now at this point i'd have to that was like a two-hour show I'd, i should probably go back and listen to it uh, so but i probably Duncan, yeah. ladies and gentlemen a two-hour show <laughs> <laughs> I probably, I, I think I probably had Duncan uh, higher. I mean, a lot of this too is that, and I think it's also interesting when you talk about the similarities between these guys, they both kind of had these long post primes where they're underrated. I think Duncan, because he was ranked so highly to begin with, you know, people were talking about him as the Spurs best player in kind of that second time period from 2011 to 2016 when he retired, you know, talking about him as the Spurs best player even you know towards the end of that and maybe until Kawhi Leonard finally broke through when you know it was probably Tony Parker uh by the end of that and they had really more of an ensemble cast you know to me Duncan was overrated I felt uh by most people towards the end of his career where KG probably was still underrated after he had that injury in 09 because you know Tim Duncan still would post up every once in a while and KG didn't really do as much of that but you know I, I think KG you know I like him better as a defensive player just a little bit more versatility little better jump shot a little better free throw shooter uh you know better passer and, and i think duncan a better post player but i think maybe a little bit of an overrated post player certainly a better rim protector uh, than kg but uh so i i think just garnett's if they're similar value players which i think most people would uh, well not most people but you know, we would probably agree <laughs> You know, I, I like the additional versatility of KG just 
slightly more than I do Tim Duncan. I, I like that you can see how easy it is to have a conversation that turns into an argument with yourself about these two players. Yeah. You're like, well, you, you know, you, I like Duncan in the post, but then actually you don't really want to run your whole offense through Duncan. And then, well, you could run Duncan at center and he's stronger, but KG's more versatile and he's, you just, you go down that rabbit hole. Well, I, yeah, I think though it's time to move on and talk about another guy that you have higher. I think you're eight through five, all these guys, you have a little bit higher. I mean, and I think probably the guys that you're higher than are Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. I mean, those are the guys who, because I think I had Magic at like either number four or number three uh, on my personal list. And my list, I think, was not as longevity focused uh, as yours, which, uh, and you're doing a little bit more of a numerically focused approach than I did. But yeah, I mean, so you've got KG, Duncan, and now Akeem Olajuwon, Shaq is your number five. You've got those big guys over Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. I think also there's just because Larry Bird and Magic Johnson are perimeter players who had the ball in their hands, they're just kind of sexier. They're more in the consciousness uh, and, you know, they played on those iconic teams too. I think that's another reason why, you know, they get a boost uh, from a lot of people compared to the guys we're talking about. But uh, again, I'll give you the floor here on uh, Akeem Olajuwon, another fascinating player. Well, before I get to Akeem, yeah. I just want to sort of reiterate the sexiness thing here. Magic and Bird, uh, along with Jordan and LeBron and maybe a few other guys we can talk about later, they're really the only smalls who I think are in the conversation for greatest seasons ever. So it's not like I, I have a stance that views Magic and Bird in a really negative light. They just, neither of them have the longevity of these players. And in Magic's case, really quickly, it was the fact that he came into the league so young, it took him a couple years to kind of turn into Magic Johnson. He's just given a total pass for that, probably because yeah. of his ni- 1980s uh, game six. Yeah, it was just assumed that he was that good all the time because right. that one game, that's all people remember, especially when you go back to that time, there wasn't really much on TV. Right, right, right. No one remembers that he set the turnovers record in a game the game before in game five. Um, but for Bird, same thing. Bird came in old. He was like 23 in his rookie season. and Because yeah, he transferred he from Indi- Indiana to Indiana State and then he, you know, went through his senior year, so he was older. Yeah. Well, if you haven't read, uh, if the listeners haven't read Jackie McMullen's whole thing about how Bird got to Indiana State, and it's incredible. He like just didn't even want to play basketball at Indiana and hit away, and then it took him a while to get into the game formally. Um, and then so he only had you know nine, eight or nine great years under his belt. So they they I think traditionally just get automatically uh, lumped into the top four, five, six, seven players. And when you stack it up this way, it's these big that and I say I think in the postmortem I talk about how height ages really well and if we get to Kareem we can we can reiterate that yeah but it's like yeah all these bigs here so Hakeem uh, Hakeem had tremendous longevity that really wasn't talked about and in a way he was the Garnett before Garnett not quite as extreme but he was saddled in a ridiculously bad situation in Houston if I can rant about this for a second um, you're looking at a team that was not very good at any point in time and yet made no key transactions transactional moves for years. They did, they did nothing. They brought no one in through the draft. No, they're, they're, It was before unrestricted free agency for a couple of those years. They had players getting suspended for drugs. Uh, the Twin Tower hopeful was Ralph Sampson, and his his career was completely curtailed by injury. Uh, Don Chaney, the, the greatest coach of the year ever, I think, Don Chaney. Every time I watch a game from that season, I'm like, what is Don Chaney doing? And then you go, oh, he won coach of the year. I I don't know what games yeah. they're watching. He, he, <laughs> he and Sam Mitchell in, what was it, 2007 the Raptors that's probably the Raptors those season, would be yeah, my two yeah. yeah man um so there's a lot there with H- 
Hakeem that I think suppresses him in the general conversation. But he's he's really this guy out of all of these guys that we're going to talk about today. That when I look at him as a player, I look at his situation. You know, he wasn't traded. He didn't have a lot of roster turnover. It's like, wow, it's possible that he was even better than I'm giving him credit for. But it's also possible that he was too rigid. Like it's it's hard to give players credit for personalities transferring well. Like if he was put in a different situation, it's possible that he would have said, okay, no, I still need to get my touches. I still need to get my 30 points a game. Can we please have a four out system with a bunch of shooters so you can throw it into me and I can kick it out to them? Like there's just a lot of uncertainty around Olajuwon. Yeah, and it's interesting because his best years, 94 and 95, at least in the playoffs, those the, the years that they won, of course. Uh, number one, they did kind of have those systems. But number two, you know, what was he, like 30 and 31 there or 29 and 30? Usually you would expect that a guy's prime years would be before that. So you would think, oh, he was probably better during those times. But, you know, again, they weren't really contending, you know, really until 1993. Again, after that 86 uh, finals appearance, which was such a surprise so you you wonder of whether you know did he get better or was he just this good the whole time yeah and there's a lot of truth in terms of um him being really good for a number of years uh there's let me let me just speak to something there about the peak um i think it's pretty clear that his best season was 1993 that was he he improved his playmaking he made a concerted effort to pass more uh in interviews he talks about trusting his teammates and he still has the defensive motor i think his defensive peak was probably 89 or 90 physically he was still just an, a monster uh, but a lot of guys have a late offensive peak Nate like Nowitzki in 11 or yeah. even Bird's best offensive season was probably 87 or 88 you see this pattern a lot with LeBron right now you know I'm not going to say it's his offensive peak but the offensive game evolves you learn the patterns you learn the angles your jumper gets polished and what goes is your defense and I don't think Hakeem was nearly the defender in 1995 that he was say in 80 or 90. But man, that offensive game was dialed in by then. And that's that's the indelible impression that people have. Hakeem absolutely faking David Robinson out of his job. Yeah. And I think maybe as a big as well, it's easier where you're, you're not as reliant on athleticism if you're more of a have more of a skill game uh, the way Hakeem, at least towards the end, did. You know, that unblockable fadeaway jumper going to the baseline that he could get off at any time, the hook shot, the, all the, the up and unders where he never traveled once. Um, uh, <laughs> um, well, yeah, he had those for years. That was the that was one yeah. of the things that jumped out to me in terms of doing film study on those '80s seasons. It's like there's a there's a playoff series in I want to say '87, maybe against was, Seattle. Oh yeah, when he had like you know 47 points 40, and 29 yeah, yeah. rebounds in one of those games. Yeah, it's his his averages for the series ended up like 40 and 20 or something comical. But he he kind of had that offensive game since the middle of the '80s. Yeah, and I think an interesting thing that that you talked about with him is again, you know, he didn't really play with the other great players. You know, Drexler came in, Barkley at the end, then all the way back in in '99, Pippen. But those guys were not really, you know, on the level of a second true superstar as late in their careers as they came in to play with him. And he also wasn't necessarily the same guy by that point. But yeah, you wonder about the scalability that he has because he never really even had that efficient of seasons. But uh, and this is something we haven't talked about enough. We should probably talk about on your show is you know how much you're waiting regular season 
versus playoffs because he just couldn't be stopped you know quote quote unquote stopped one-on-one and you know it was really hard well he wasn't incredibly efficient he's able to hit these really difficult shots and do that at a solid efficiency rate and so you got to really you know if you really want to stop him you have to double team him and that opens things up and so you know he's going to play well in a playoff situation so you've got on one hand you know a game that transports well into that playoff crucible but on the other hand he's not incredibly efficient and you know not really an outside shooter you know he's got to be down there on the low block taking up space for other guys so you wonder about his scalability at the same time the the playoff thing is a great point uh maybe we should table it but yeah. yes a, a huge component with Hakeem needless to say is that if you sized up his regular season metrics he would be a rung lower and some of the stuff he's able to do in the postseason what his skill set sort of affords itself to is this ability to just barbecue different defenses in the playoffs and I think he sustains a lot of offensive value there but and there's still a but he never played on a great team he never played played with great offensive teammates so there there is that lingering question mark in the front of my mind like how how would he translate offensively how much value would he sustain if you put him in one of these good situations like the 80s juggernauts had or whatnot well another guy Shaq who you know you wouldn't say necessarily is that portable I actually you know you've got him at five I want to talk about his defense first what did you find about him defensively because you know he is the center he's got to be the anchor of your defense not a guy I recall who played on a lot of great defenses certainly in the regular season no he didn't uh it's it's categorically his weakness I mean that's the that's the wart with Shaq he was one of the few bigs ever who was a legit offensive juggernaut on that side and when you look at his defense first thing that jumps out is his pick and roll coverage he does not like to come out to the perimeter especially as his career moved on he's got a lot of poor instincts that he brought into the league he he would bite on up fakes uh he was foul prone when he was younger and he didn't have the greatest reaction time you know i talked about garnett earlier as a as a t-cell just bouncing around ready to jump on invaders Shaq is more kind of like a a bear uh, and not in the draymond green nickname sense like if he's in the lane and you come at him he's big he's long he'll block shots he's physical he'll grab a bunch of boards and that's where his value comes from but he's not super mobile Uh, he got lazy at certain points in his career and and i think in many ways there's a relationship between his conditioning his defensive exertion and his overall value which probably prevented him from being in the conversation for greatest player of all time yeah although he still was was pretty damn good good. And, and i mean i think people just forget how absolutely unstoppable he was during his prime and just that there was no way to deal with him and then you know the other team like you couldn't get away with going small against him although I think actually more teams should have just tried that and just said hey you know what we're not going to stop this guy anyway so why don't we just go small and we're just accept that we're going to have to double team him and then let's just kick his ass in the other end like teams didn't really seem to ever try that it was always like all right well let's throw like Chris Dudley or Scott Pollard out here because like you know our primary center is in foul trouble as opposed to really you know trying to spread the floor against him and then just accept that you're gonna have to double team I think that's something that teams should just do more of anyway is like instead of just all right we're gonna throw we got to get this guy out here 
who's going to be an offensive liability because, you know, we need someone to guard this guy, but you're double teaming anyway. So why not just guard him with a worse player to begin with if you're going to double team? But anyway, that's, that's an aside. So, but he, yeah, go so ahead. Do you, do you, do you remember the 2001 finals? Larry Brown tried that. Do you remember this? No, I, I, I that was actually a period where I was in college. I kind of wasn't paying as much attention. Like, I don't really remember. And also just because like, I wasn't interested in those finals because I just knew that the Lakers right. were going to win the East was so like I remember the Western Conference playoffs from those years much better than I do the finals because it was just I, I watched the 2000 finals that was actually competitive but uh from uh, 01 and, and 02 were just I knew they're gonna be massacres and I you know I had other stuff to do at that point there should be a there should be a governing internet body somewhere that gives you points for admitting you didn't watch basketball as closely during a period I, I feel like <laughs> that's a thing <laughs> that's got to be a thing um anyway the point I was going to make there was Larry Brown tried uh, I never forgot it and you can still find the I went and looked at how long he played the the lineup for at some point he ran to Kembe Mutombo with four wings for like eight I think it was 18 minutes in the first two games in LA so he had he had Iverson Raja Bell Aaron McKee and Eric Snow and they ran this college style lineup at the time that's what it was kind of looked at as uh and they broke even for those 18 minutes and I don't know how many minutes Shaq was on the bench for but I, I kind of had the same idea like you are in over your head against this guy he at his peak was completely unstoppable uh to your point he employed like 15 or 20 western conference centers it, it, it during the 2000s guys that just had to come in and like lean on him and foul him but that wasn't really an effective strategy yeah. so why not lean why not lean into the skid go the other way and I, i'm gonna point to that 18 minutes of that 18 minute sample size as evidence that it could have been a good idea <laughs> yeah well and even then you know they had Matumbo out there as well uh, you know, I, mean, I wouldn't have said, "Hey, don't you know play all six five guys," but you know, and that you know maybe they could have gone with like George Lynch at center on that team or something, and, and right, and just said, "Hey, you know, we're going to double and and just try and be quick." It, that that strategy gets a lot easier under the modern rules too, which I actually came in I think that year. I can't remember those oh one or oh two uh, finals that those zone rules first came in, but obviously, zone, it was, yeah, it yeah. took teams a while to kind of uh, adjust to that. Um, all right, I guess we, 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 maybe, you know what we should probably do? Maybe we can, you know, we'll talk kind of more about these you know, some of the system stuff, but also maybe we can just table the LeBron versus Jordan discussion for your show. Cause we're, we're already like almost an hour in here. So we should probably just get through the, the rest of these guys. Uh, but you know, I, I mean, we could spend probably an entire podcast just on Jordan versus LeBron, which would be a lot of fun. But, uh, Bill Russell, number four, again, a, a guy who you have him higher than I did. I think part of that is that I still maintain a little bit that, you know, offense is more important than defense, uh, just because I think that the value of a replacement on offense is a little bit higher than on defense. Um, but, you know, if you're going to weight those equally, Bill Russell, as I talked about on the show with uh, Kevin Pelton and, and Royce Webb, you know, basically created the number one defense. And it wasn't just the number one defense. It was the number one defense, like, by a mile, way more of an outlier when in, in an era, as you've noted, because there were so few teams, it was really difficult to create separation from the rest of the league. Uh, so but Bill Russell at number four, I mean, I think some people would have him there, but, you know, your argument isn't like the rings argument that's, you know, very unnuanced that a lot of people have. It's what is your argument then for having him at, at four? 
Well, he's probably the greatest defensive player ever. Yeah. And and his sustained defensive value is, was there from day one, and it was there till he left. Now, did he peak in the early and mid-60s and then come down as he aged? Absolutely. But that team was a defensive juggernaut, and they were a defensive juggernaut through most of his career. And when he left, that completely went away. That's, that's a really broad stroke argument. But when you dive into something deeper, one of the things I've done this summer is develop develop a box plus minus version that goes back to 1952. And, you know, I've been trying to look at that to see what the insights are to the Celtics team. And it's kind of echoing the same stuff uh, that we've expected or had before then. So for instance, defensively, Russell's box plus minus back then is right up there with the guys today or ahead of them, depending on how you look at the minutes or whatever. So the short of it is you've got a decent offensive center, good passer later in his career, he was a decent offensive player when he was younger and like an all-time level defender. And no, today I don't, I, I agree with you. Today, I think all the data shows that there's an asymmetry between offensive value and defensive value. Offensive value is a little more important. The top offensive players are a little better, but that's overstated all the time, Nate. Like, yeah. I, I have I have some study at the end of the series that compares them and the difference between the best offensive players and the best defensive players is not necessarily what most people probably think it is. If the best offensive guys say are six points better than average, the best defensive guys are like four and a half or something. So Russell in his time before the three point shot playing 44 minutes a game being a revolutionary, he was really the first guy to do that. He, he, he was a shot blocking machine. Uh, he was horizontal as well. He was cerebral uh, that that that's what puts him this is a, a little bit of of a, a non sequitur for what we've been talking about but how good were his teammates during those i mean there's all these hall of famers that he played with but you wonder whether some of them just became hall of famers because they were on a lot of championship teams how good were those guys uh, that he was with well I, I a lot of them were hall of famers because they played with bill russell um a lot of guys back then were hall of famers because they get the the pioneer boost you know there's eight teams in the league and there's still 24 guys on the all-star team so you make three four five all-stars and you have a sexy nickname like easy ed mccauley and uh and you can get there now now i mentioned easy ed mccauley he he was on the team before russell he was part of the russell trade i believe that brought him in as a rookie so they had koozie uh bill Sharman, and mccauley those were really good offensive players in 1956 so he he comes to this team that was actually a pretty good offensive team when he gets there in 57 but koozie and Sharman start to get old by 1966 61, like Sam Jones is really the best offensive guy. And it, it takes a few years before they have other, you know, good offensive players, uh, especially for an era where there's eight or nine teams. Havelcheck didn't really become Havelcheck until later in the 60s. They brought in Bailey Howell in the last couple of years. Um, but Sam Jones was the guy. And then all these other guys after Kuzi and Sharman left were def- defensive guys. They were what we'd think of as like as like the three and D guys of the, you know, early Spurs teams or something. Thing. It was Casey Jones, good defensive player. Satch Sanders was getting a lot of minutes at forward. Um, Tommy Heinsohn's a big name, but he was he was just kind of a gunner for a number of years. It, it was built and structured more like a traditional team than we think of looking back at all the Hall of Famers. Yeah, that's. Uh... That's interesting. And part of the reason that I downgraded Russell a little bit was that 
their offenses weren't any good, you know, during a lot of that period. Uh, you know, they were very defensive oriented teams. And so, you know, again, without having gone back and watched a ton of his games, my assumption was, well, you know, he, how good could he, could he have really been uh, as an offensive player? And what's your reaction to that? Well, do you want to play time machine? You mean if in a more modern game? No, no. I mean, just at the time, you know, it seemed like he was pretty inefficient um, and, you know, wasn't really able to shoot outside of two feet. Um, So (laughs) slightly more than two. Yeah. uh, Um, Okay. I mean, well, all right. If he's going up for like these lefty hook shots from like six feet away, I mean, that's like, you know, what was that? A 35% shot or something back then? I don't know. That that shot was crazy. Yeah. For those who haven't seen old basketball, it was just totally normal to take lefty and righty sweeping hooks within like 15 feet of the basket. And the shot was literally phased out across the entire league. But if you go watch old film, you'll you'll see these shots. They're they're really wild ideas. Well, Um, I mean, and I just when you think about the fact that even when they're running an incredible amount back then, you know, 120, 125 possessions a game and they're incredibly inefficient to think about like what their half court efficiency must have been like back then i mean you just see these shots where they just like you know turn for a 15 foot hook shot and just like half the time they just only hit the backboard like it or they're just like you know running along the lane line and then just throw up this hook shot that like i mean tr- and try and go off the backboard it's like it's just impossible to have any touch uh i mean they're probably shooting like in the low 30s in the half court i would guess as considering how much they ran and that they still were only shooting you know 40 percent as a league at that time and you know what happened you analytics guys came along and ruined the game (laughs) yeah yeah that's right (laughs) no more sweeping 30 foot shots (laughs) well i mean and that uh, Uh, (laughs) we should talk about this too i mean uh, it's probably uh, enough on russell for now just because we're kind of limited in time but uh the fact that kareem was able to make that sky hook at like the percentage that he did i mean it you linked to this i thought it was really interesting a guy who went through i think it was the 1983 playoffs and just took a look at like what percentage Kareem was shooting on those sky hooks and it was like it was definitely like high 40s at least even maybe even low 50s you know in the playoffs I think it was in the 50s yeah yeah, yeah against like playoff defense and, and you know that was only a couple of series but uh in his analysis so he could have just been hot then but I mean that's like to make that shot as a, a seven listed at seven two many said he was taller than that uh unblockable shot off of one foot from like 14 feet away from the basket to make that at 50% is just like it's ridiculous. And, and the fact that like no one else has ever been able to come close to making a shot like that at that kind of a percentage is just unbelievable. I, I think because he was so good right away, so good in college, uh, so good when he got into the league, uh, the the all of the politics around changing his name, his his personality, the way he was with the media. I, I think what gets completely undersold about Kareem is the fact that he's this like seven two seven three giant who was also crazy graceful and fluid and cerebral, and so he's just like, all right, I got this shot that's completely unstoppable, and I can build my entire offensive repertoire around it and apparently i can do it until i'm about 40 years old and and this like size and and essentially athleticism and fluidity that he had for so many years if you go back and watch him when he was younger it pops but we just don't talk about him 
like he's one of the like great freak athletes. But look, I was I was covering a game in 2009 at the Staples Center and I was in the media room and someone stepped on my like the back of my heel as they were walking by me. And I turn around and I'm about six two, six three. I would be listed at six four in shoes or something like that. I turn around. I'm looking at this belly button. I'm like, wait, why am I looking at a belly button? I look up. It's Kareem. He's like 13 and a half feet tall. It, it, it It's completely undersold. Yeah. And I mean, that's my, that's my Kareem stepping on me story. (laughs) Everyone has one. Uh, But yeah, it's, uh, it's really remarkable. And I think just so we have it, by the way, LeBron at three, uh, and this was actually before last year's playoffs. Uh, and I think it was your prediction that LeBron would soon surpass Jordan. And then same thing, uh, Jordan at two and Kareem at one. Uh, with the notation, I think, you, did you say that both Jordan and LeBron at higher peaks than uh, Kareem Abdul-Montana? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. make to make a Save by the Bell reference there that, that we did before the show started. Not that we were sitting around like talking about Save by the Bell endlessly. <laughs> no, it was only like three minutes. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. They had higher peaks. LeBron, after his 18 season, I moved up to number two. Mm. And I think his his trajectory, he, he's he's looking like he's going to have enough longevity maybe to get to Kareem. But we can discuss that uh, in, in the next segment of this when we talk about LeBron and, and Jordan. Yeah, and I will uh, apply my completely unbiased analysis, having grown up in Chicago in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, so people can look forward to that i'm I'm looking forward to that i think the thing that most people don't realize about this series is how weird it was for me to put certain numbers next to certain names like even just thinking like oh i now have jordan third that just feels weird yeah and and i think there's like right there's like the scientist in you that's trying to uh be true to the method but then there's also the guy who grew up watching i mean i didn't miss a bulls game once nba league pass was around so uh, it's it's strange but we can talk about that in the next installment yeah i mean and i do think you know the acknowledgement maybe that Jordan had the highest peak is still, you know, I think that might uh, mollify some of the people who are just up in arms about that and just say, hey, you know what? Like he played essentially from 85 to 98 and he missed three seasons during that, but the 86 with the foot and then, uh, you know, 94 and 95 essentially. So, you know, we're really only talking about a 10 year career and LeBron, his longevity is unbelievable. The one thing that I, and this will be my last comment on this, but, you know, I, I said, Said, when people were talking about oh LeBron is as good as Jordan you know what when he was kind of finishing up with the heat, he would, would have been 30. I'm like, all right, let's see where he's at when he's 34 or 35, because Jordan to me easily, you know, the best 34 year old, the best 35 year old ever, you know, I'm still playing at a level that's best player in the league by that point. I'm like, well, that's pretty much unprecedented. Maybe Kareem did it a little bit, but I, you know, I didn't think that Kareem was on the same level as Jordan, you know, what, what he was doing with those bulls teams in the finals, you know, in 1998. Uh, so, and now LeBron at age 34 was at, that level last playoffs and so you know that's why it becomes so much more of a discussion for me i think it's a, a very legitimate one um but kareem still higher than those guys to you 
and I mean, how good was he? I mean, we know that he was basically the best player in the league for pretty much every year in the 70s. Uh, you know, maybe you could say 77. You know, he, he got beaten by Walton, although he had a pretty good playoffs in 77. Had, uh, I think, one year where he didn't make the All-Star team because he broke his hand punching Kent Benson. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, until probably, you know, 1980, you know, he's got a 10-year run as the best guy in the league. And then it, into that later point during those Lakers years, how good is he during that period? Because that that's really the period where, you know, you're saying because of these years, that's why he's better than Jordan and, and LeBron at this point. I, I think what's crazy, you, you could say that he still kind of had that prime, late prime thing going until like 1982. And then 83, 84, 85. 86 he still has especially for that era the way the game was played he still has some de- defensive value with his shot blocking and his length that's this whole like height ages really well thing and so even though he can't move as well he's still able to play a very similar role in the lane which is not to say he's an all-league defender but he didn't become a liability he's still got some value yeah well, I mean, people killed side, his his defensive rebounding in that period like the 83 finals you know he really got eaten up by Moses Malone that's something that people talked about it and that was that was an era where defensive rebounding for a center was much more important than it became later on Right, but you also need to use context yeah. when understa- rebounding numbers maybe more than like any other numbers get fuzzy. And when you've got the early Lakers in the 80s had a massive, once they had Rambis and Mark Landsberger, Magic rebounding from his position, like that was a rebounding team around Kareem. They didn't need that version of Kareem yeah. to grab 12 boards a game. So, um, so you have that on the defensive side. And then offensively, what's crazy when you watch tape is like you can't even figure out what year it is sometimes. You're just like, oh... They throw it into Kareem. He's this specialized half-court weapon when the Showtime Lakers aren't running. And Kareem just kills people with the skyhook. And you're like, oh, is it 1986? Is it 1980? Is he 40? Is he 41? So he's able to maintain this sort of like all-star level of offensive play. I think that's the, the simplest way to describe it on a pod uh, for a number of those years into year like 17, 18-ish, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and even, you know, the 1985 finals, think of all the incredible players who are on the floor in that finals and he was the best player on the floor at age i think 38 uh in 1985 you know not playing at quite the level to me of like you know jordan in the 98 finals although he's three years older because you know jordan was really the only guy causing the bulls offense to work at that point and they obviously had a lot of other options at that point but still you know the best player on the floor and then i think part of maybe why kareem's performance in the 80s it gets a little underrated is because because he had kind of these high profile failures in some pretty spectacular losses for the Lakers against other younger big men. Malone in 1983, 1986 against Samson and Elijah on where, you know, he probably was not as good as those guys in those series. And if you're talking right. about, okay, all right, now he's not the best center in the league. He's getting beaten up by these guys. You're probably missing. Well, okay. There's still, you know, 27 centers in the league that he doesn't have that problem against. And then, you know, the fact that it still has value to be the third, third or fourth best center in the league in a center heavy era uh going into you know your 40s exactly i, I mean it, i've heard that comparison it's like peak moses malone whatever that is 1983 couldn't be too far off from it and oh peak moses malone uh, you know destroyed kareem on the glass
pass. First of all, the game is more than just one on one. But oh, okay, so he's not as good as Peak Moses Malone in his 14th season. And the same kind of thing in '86. He's still a really good weapon, but trying to handle Elijahwan and Sampson. Uh, okay, that's that's not the biggest black eye ever. I think a lot of what happened, you know, what we talked about earlier on the show with Garnett and Elijahwan. Kareem went through some of that himself in Milwaukee when he went to LA, missing the playoffs a couple years in a row. Uh, the team falling short of ridiculous expectations. Um, even in Milwaukee, when Oscar Robertson left, you know they just did not have a good year. But he also broke his hand. They were much better when he played. He he does well in all of these kinds of historical estimations of plus minus and everything with the box score. So there's just a lot of there was a lot of narrative I think that was brewing against him in those years. And, and the last thing I'll say there on the 70s is boy for a long time before I really went back and looked. I thought, you know, I think I'd rather have a Walton type in like 77, 78 uh, than Kareem. And I've done basically a complete 180 on that. Walton's still great, but I think Walton gets this like boost that we give guys, uh, Derek Rose, Penny Hardaway, uh, even guys like Len Bias who never get to never get to play. We, we give, you know, he had one or two great years and we're just like, oh, he, he must have been one of the all time level players. Yeah. And it's like, eh. <laughs> yeah, eh, I, I've railed I about that so before. Sure. That's, it definitely is like, like you just like because you want to like we, especially now when there's like all this like film and data like you still want to find a way to nostalgicize things to be like oh there was this unknown guy that like oh man you know you if just if this did happen like the, like the thrill of the unknown almost makes you overrate those players like oh what they could right, have right. what this guy would have been man let me tell you you know what this guy would have been if only blah 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 and then, and then the highlight reel makes it worse. Like there was one about Grant Hill recently when he got into the Hall of Fame. Grant Hill was great when he was healthy. Like he was legit. He, he's one of those guys of who's five. probably, I think, underrated how good he was yeah. during the healthy period uh, because right, he wasn't right, right. really but, on a good team at that point. Right. But then what happens sometimes is is people who forgot or never got to see this guy play might see a highlight, and then immediately you have like, oh, so like he could have been better than Jordan. <laughs> it's like Len Bias was better than jordan uh there's there's a lot to get there so yeah and i think you, another reason maybe why and again I, I don't think i agree with you as far as like i don't know that i would have uh kareem or jordan uh, or, or sorry kareem above lebron or, or jordan personally uh but you know so we, love we when can we talk disagree. about we can talk about that more but uh, at another time but um you know i think the fact that kareem really only won one title quote unquote on his own you know and, and that i think a lot of people think of those titles that the lakers won as magic's titles and you know kareem didn't play in that clinching game in 1980 again you know magic wasn't that good those years but he did have that one unbelievable game uh you know the 1982 uh i think magic actually won finals mvp in 1982 if, if i'm not mistaken um and so i think there's an idea that those were magic johnson's titles when you know that's probably not really accurate and then you talk about well all right the, those bucks teams right that 72 bucks teams is one of the greatest teams of all time but they went up against a greater team and uh barely lost uh at least in terms of the point differential of the series to that 72 lakers right. team 71 bucks team was was unbelievable 74 you know they lose a really hard-fought series to boston then he gets traded to the lakers and you know good luck naming any of his teammates uh, for those first couple of years <laughs> in la so um, you mean you're not a don ford don ford fan club member <laughs> so uh yeah i, I think that the fact that he 
those his best years really are almost kind of lost and there's this okay yeah he got his one in 71 and then you know he came in and uh you know but it took magic joining him before he was able to win another one and so you know how good could he have really been during those times right i I mean it's a great uh rundown you just gave because he actually played 71 72 74 he played on these monster teams then he and again we talked about this earlier with garnett with diversity of circumstance then he goes to la and 77 and he dragged that team talk about floor raising i mean they played at like a 50 53 win pace something like that um you know made some movement in the playoffs and and to your point just did not have a great team around him and then when magic and fresh blood came in he was clearly the best team in 1980 uh, best player on that team in 1980 for my money still the best player on that team in 1982 that's a lot of really really good teams in the finals or winning championships or, um, you know, having incredible results that I think historically is just put in a black box and called the 70s and wrapped up and thrown away by most folks. Yeah. And then also there's this idea that when they played the Blazers, that Walton really killed him in that series. I mean, that's that's what people say. I haven't gone back and watched that series. Um, I don't know if you have. Have you seen any of that 77 West finals? Was Walton just kicking yeah. his ass? No, 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 no. It was it, Walton, this, uh, the, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, uh, close to jumping into Walton's voice because every time Walton comes <laughs> up, I <laughs> just can't help myself. But he he talks about like how Kareem dragged him up and down the court, which is a bit of an exaggeration. But uh, no, no I th- yeah, there, it's, well, it's, that, that's from airplane, right? <laughs> he has to drag drag <laughs> yeah. Walton and Lanier up and down the court for forty eight minutes a night. <laughs> well, there's some truth to it. Uh, they they look, they're both great players at a great series. But um, no, Jabbar Jabbar gets his a lot. Um, Walton does his thing, but Walton's not going to score 30 a night like Kareem was. Yeah. And I would not classify that at all as as Walton killing him. All right. Well, I, I think we, we've we uh, done as much as we can here today, but uh, Ben site backpicks.com. And uh, he's also started a podcast and a uh, associated Patreon. So tell us about that a little bit before we depart. Um, yeah, Patreon is, uh, really the idea was to continue to create content in a, in a multimedia fashion, wanted to try a podcast and the Patreon really just supports the podcast, gives me time, equipment, et cetera, uh, to be able to riff off. I, I, it's still very experimental. Every show is kind of led with a, with a different voice. Um, interestingly enough, the next podcast is about the Lakers and it's introduced by Bill Walton. So awesome. Bill is like one of the nicest men. Uh, that I've ever met. He really is, is uh, an incredible guy. I, I hung out with him for an evening uh, just because a buddy of mine is a, was a potentially uh gonna buy season tickets and so they like put bill walton in touch with them as just like a way to uh you know kind of schmooze with them a little bit and so uh got to spend a night watching a game with bill it was pretty fun wow that that sounds better than getting stepped on by kareem <laughs> Well, everyone has a watching a game with Bill Walton story, except you, apparently. Uh, uh, yes, no, I would, love to, I would love to get one of those. All right, man. Well, thanks. This was a, a ton of fun, and I can't wait to get into some more of these uh, discussions. I mean, we could obviously talk about this for, for 10 hours, and uh, maybe over the next couple of years we can. Uh, but th- this is great, and uh, looking forward to talking again soon. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. I, I, I hope it was as fun as the first go around for people. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh... 
<laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.